Prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Welcome, my friends. Thank you for joining me on The Kyle Serafin Show. Um, I'm doing this solo today, so producer Phil has failed us on on many accounts. So we'll see how this all turns out. I've got a guest with me, as you can tell. Today's going to be our long-form interview of the week. And what I have is uh, George Hill. George Hill is a retired supervisory intelligence analyst. He came out of the Boston field office when he retired. As you can see behind him, he's got a little bit of Marine Corps pride. So we're going to get into his background, establish a little bit of bona fides, and we're going to have just, just an open, free-form conversation about sort of the failure that the FBI has been uh, uh, projecting on top of uh, the American people. And then how do we get there? Where did it uh, Where did it come from? What he's seen in his time? And we have very different kind of backgrounds when it comes to the analytical versus the operational. But I think we've come to some of the, probably the same conclusions from it. So I think this will be something you guys enjoy listening to. And um, with that, welcome, George. Thanks for joining me, bud. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right. So let's establish a little bit. Uh, I know you did some prior government work, but you started in the military. Is that correct? Maybe walk me through a little bit of your life path. Sure. Um, so I was a genius when I graduated from high school. So yep. um, I knew more than everybody. And uh, so I went in the Marine Corps. That's how you do it. And uh, yeah, when I stand, stood on the yellow footprints, uh, within a few seconds, I realized I probably wasn't the smartest person. And just to double down on stupid, uh, re-enlisted a couple times, wound up doing... Uh, total of 13 years active duty Marine Corps and without getting into all the details I had to get out um, for personal reasons and I was out for uh, almost 10 years in the private sector uh, during that time I finished up my master's degree and uh, I was a scout master for a troop in uh, Delaware and one of my assistant scout masters kept on you know like haranguing me George you know you should go back in and get your last seven years get some kind of retirement out of it so finally I gave in, you know, and, and uh, tried to get back in the Marine Corps in 1999 and got the Heisman from them. You know, it's like, you know, the peace dividend, the, the wall had been down by that time for almost 10 years. Yep. Um, you know, I mean, they were just basically throwing the babies out with the bathwater. And uh, I said, well, I'm going to go into somebody's intel program. And so uh, I figured, well, I uh, sailed with the Navy, I understand the Navy, worked with the Navy. Let me give them a call. And uh, so I went into the, the uh, Navy's Reserve Intel program and, mm. you know, thought I would just jump right in having done the job before. And they said, no, no. So I had to go through another year's worth of schooling. And uh, I was only at my new command for a few months. And then 9-11 happened. Yep. And uh, even though the Navy Reserve Intelligence component was almost the exact same size as the active duty component, we wound up filling 85% uh, of the deployments in, in both theaters of operation. Uh, so, you know, I had my chance to do some uh, really fun things overseas uh, during that additional 13 years. Obviously, I went beyond the seven that I needed, mm -hmm. um, but quite frankly, it was very rewarding, and it was a very different country in, in 2001, 2002. So true. Um, a lot of people um, really, uh, are completely oblivious to the change that has taken place just in the last uh, 20 years. No question. So um, you, you came in right out of high school, which means you were enlisted. What was your MOS specifically? Um, so I started out as a um, 0211, uh, mm -hmm. and then I went on to uh, 0231, which is counter intel. Uh, I did three years on recruiting duty, which is a different MOS. I had a secondary MOS, a nuclear, biological, and chemical defense, uh, which came in handy a few springs ago in this whole um, 
Wuhan virus uh, yeah. manifested itself. Yep. And um, so, yeah, um, you know, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not a special operator. I'm not special by any means. Um, you know, just a, an old jarhead and uh, retired Navy senior chief now. But I would say that when you do intelligence for a living, you become sort of a trained observer, at least of information, the quality of the signal that's coming in, how much noise is part of it, and that sort of thing. I mean, that's kind of the work, is it not? Sure. So I, I also teach college part-time, and, and the, one of the opening, probably the opening speech that I give is that um, I, I don't, you know, when, when you write or when you speak in this line of work, um, I don't care what you feel. Feeling mm -hmm. requires the suspension of critical thinking. I don't care what you think. Everybody thinks, obviously, to varying degrees. Um, and I don't care what you believe in. That is the realm of theologians. That's right. Um, you know, so un unfortunately, especially for you know, like my family and, and friends, it's tough being um, uh, linked up to an old intel uh, person because a, a lot of my reactions to things involve critical and then iterative thinking as opposed to just going uh, by my gut uh, at, at the moment. Right. Um, Le so, less, less emotion, more trying to, uh, to break down the situation and, and see what the components that are at play and these kind of things, yeah? Yeah, and, and it's exasperating, you know? So, like, when, when I hear things or read things in the news, as opposed to, you know, going for the clickbait, signing on for the, uh, you know, the first paragraph that's to rope you in, you know, I, I want to know the details, you know, and then I start using my own 40 plus years of experience to to start drawing my own conclusions. Um, it's um, it's not a fun way to go through life. No, but it's probably, it, it's probably, know, probably less fun for people around me. You know? Yeah, you're probably right. So we had a, we had a, a former guest and, and he said, you know, whenever things got salty and, and when he was dealing even with people in the bureau, when they would start kind of salting, you know, or, or sharing their emotional involvement he would just kind of break down and say you know i'm joe friday nothing but the facts and uh i think that's kind of kind of what you're saying is that you know we when you have a certain amount of training you have a certain amount of background knowledge and expertise then uh you don't need the editorial like you are you want to be the one who who edits your own thoughts and, and kind of comes to that conclusion from that's so funny i i use that in school and uh you know i just say just joe friday it and and i get the blank faces yeah the generational so, loss thank, there thank yeah, thank goodness for YouTube. I can go out and bring up Jack Webb and and you know run through a couple of things and uh, you know and I tell the the students you know hey if you write me a paper and you start off a sentence with I believe that I'm done reading. Yeah, you, you just failed your paper. Yeah, that sounds right. All right, I want to uh, just like I said continue kind of establish the little bona fides that we've got here. You got into government service. What year was it? And uh, on the civilian side, and and how did that yeah. kind of progress? On the civilian side, so yeah, so um, I'm out now. I mean, people know, um, you know, they're out. You, you you really don't talk about it, you know, while you're employed. But I was recruited by the National Security Agency in 2005. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, joined government service. Um, it was kind of an emotional journey for me. I was coming back from my um, third deployment, and I had made a determination that I was not going to rejoin the private sector. Again, we were, the country was very different. Um, yeah. And I thought that 
I could be of more use uh, working in the intelligence community uh, than going back and, and uh, to some marketing position at, at some corporation, some soulless corporation. Sure. I mean, we were uh, so and we were a country at war at that point. I mean, 05, like this was right in the midst of it. I mean, things were kicking off strong in, in both theaters, I think. Right. And sure. So yeah. and there was a strong sense of patriotism. And, and how do I get involved and what do I do and what's the right answer, especially if someone's already answered the call? So. Yeah, it's hard to believe that was only 20 years ago. It really is. It's yeah, amazing. I agreed. All right, so you, you, you jumped in with NSA, uh, same type of role. Is that, is that correct? Uh, very different. I, I, I may have some halted speech patterns here because I, I do want to be cognizant of, you know, what I say. Yes. Um, you know, because I still have legal responsibilities. But Yes. Um, Let me just so, caveat that real quick before we do anything else, too, and, that, and that's that we are not going to discuss anything that's classified, that's operational, that's ongoing. We are not right. going to be divulging any national security secrets. So if you're tuning in for that, we got two people that yeah. are fairly well trained to, to identify these problems. And we've been talking around them, you know, in my case for, you know, about six, seven years in your case, better part of, you know, 20 or plus, maybe 25. Um, yeah. And so we're not going to be doing that. So you can yeah. uh, you can relax yourselves if you if you have a, a pucker factor right now and you are a part of the, the Intel community or if you're someone that's worked around it, um, this is not what you're going to hear. So if there's some pauses, please please forgive it because self censorship is part of the game that we were fairly well involved in. Um, all right. Yeah. yeah so, so without giving up too much detail, my my last three years was in the counterterrorism mission management center. Mm -hmm. um, it was in its nascent stages when I joined it, um, and you know, I'm not a 20 something and, and, and I can say without reservation, it was run by some of the smartest, hardest working, dedicated patriots that, that I had encountered um, outside of people being in uniform. I mean, mm -hmm. they're just an extraordinary group of, uh, uh, of men and women um, that were mission focused. And uh, as you said, there was a lot going on at that time. What was the uh, what was the mission? If you could hone in on it, like if you could put it in a, like a paragraph or a mission sure. statement, it, just a sentence with, without getting into any details that might cause anybody any discomfort. Yep. But it was to to optimize the SIGINT system in pursuit of the counterterrorism mission. Okay, and SIGINT is signals intelligence for those of you that signals didn't. Signals intelligence. Yeah. And uh, and give me an example of a couple of signals just for people that are not part of this uh, world and don't speak that language. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, basically anything moving across an electronic forum, except for MAZIT, measures and signals intelligence, but, you know, any kind of communication uh, signals, whether it be, um, you know, it, it, uh, you know, cell phones, radios, okay. codan radios, um, Bluetooth devices, computers, uh, signals emanating from cables connecting computers and networks, basically anything that, 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 that either travels across the wire or through the air. Yep. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that um, almost 90% of the communication in the world is done via undersea cable. Um, it's, it's not done by satellite. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a there's and there's been books written about it. And I can't remember the name of the book um, about tapping into the undersea cables back in the 60s. But um, yeah, they were sending divers down and stuff like that, right? To like physically get into the cable structure. Um, divers, but also um, NR1 and NR2, um, nuclear research uh, submarines one and two, they were referred to as uh, Admiral Hyman Rickover's personal uh, submarines. I had the opportunity to go on NR1 mm -hmm. and uh, small submarines that actually have a wheel that comes out through the, the bottom of the, of the boat uh, and they ride along the ocean floor. 
Um, so they're operating, you know, at below crush depth of what any other standard, even modern day submarine uh, would be able to operate. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, signals intelligence, you, you know, you grab it where you can, whether it's yeah, you got to go find the signal through the air. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think people get um, the, the gist of that. And I think it's worth pointing out, too, that a lot of it is, in fact, over wire and not just, you know, sending it and we're not collecting it out of the sky. And it's not a it's not a satellite grab, per se. Like sometimes you got to get physical with these things. Um, so you're doing uh, SIGINT analysis. You're doing SIGINT. Obviously, the, the agency is doing capture and then analysis. They have to get the raw intel from somewhere first. Right. So I, I was primarily a user of signals intelligence, mm -hmm. um, but in its raw form. Um, so I had the pleasure of uh, briefing the director of NSA for, for over two years um, on a weekly basis, and I had five minutes to bring him up to speed and his executive staff on what was going on uh, in the terrorism world. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that was based on not finished intelligence products, but you know things that were gestating out there and, and, and just starting to blossom. Uh, that required a more of a hyper focus of national assets. And at that point in 05, 06, you know, what was the, um, you know, just obviously wave tops only, but what were the the big threats that we were facing um, from your side? Because NSA does things that are domestic, but obviously outward facing as well, right? Sure. Um, so, I mean, obviously us PERS, U.S. persons are, are in accordance with uh, 12333, um, you know, are off limits to the National Security Agency. But um, the primary focus when I was there was um, primarily the AFPAC region, mm -hmm. uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, and and the the situation in, in that part of the world, and then the possible threat that those groups may have posed to the United States. At that time, ISIS was not even thought of. Right. Yeah. Not even on the playing field. And for right. those that are not familiar, um, 12333 is an executive order that basically sets the guidelines for where um, the operation and the collections can happen. And as you said, it it, it specifically carves out USPERS, which, which we abbreviate USPER. Um, those are US persons. And there's a whole definition of what that is. But people on US soil and American citizens that are that are kind of off limits for a lot of this stuff. Um, there are there are narrow areas where they kind of step into the sphere, I think is, and that's kind of another animal, but, um, so yeah, that will come back up again in our conversation. I'm sure it will. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. Cause at some point we bridge that gap. So your, uh, overseas focus, um, and how long are you with NSA? Oh, five to one. Uh, I was only there for five years. Okay. Um, but it was a great five years, um, involved some very exciting things outside of Fort Meade. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, um, it was a very rewarding time. Um, I was selected for chief petty officer during that time frame. Um, was with a had an opportunity to start a brand new Navy command that never existed before. Uh, I was a what's called a plank holder for that command. I mean, it was just a, mm -hmm. a very um, rewarding uh, uh, time in my professional and personal life. And how did your um, your guard was a guard or reserve at the time? Reserve. Reserve. And so how did your reserve service kind of play in? Was it, you know, hand in glove, 100 percent the same stuff or are you working on different types of operations? No, my, oddly enough, um, you know, my background is um, humid uh, and doing interrogations okay. and uh, for the military. So um, that was our primary focus um, was developing uh, 
uh, a reserve cadre of, of trained people ready for deployment uh, that could execute those missions, whether it be um, MSO, maritime security operations, or interrogation missions, or we were what we've called the Green Navy. Um, you know, so we wore, you know, BDUs or camis as they were called back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was primarily a human mission. And that's kind of the rawest type of raw because you're getting it straight from a person. So there's no way to know what the quality of that signal coming in in a lot of ways, because they come in with all their biases and, you know, all the things they're trying to deceive you with. And But it was a nice pair of gloves, though, Kyle, because I, think... I, I got the, the second side of the house, which obviously we know from what happened with Colin Powell in Iraq, that signals could intelligence can be used to confuse an enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing both sides of it, the human side of it, as well as the signals intelligence side of it, um, you know, it's called fusion. And, you know, ideally then you want to also look at any kind of open source or any other form of int that you can bring into your analysis. But it was good to see both sides of the equation, both the human side and the SIGINT side. And, and like I said, I, I worked with great people uh, at Fort Meade, um, and, but they would live and die by SIGINT. If, if it wasn't collected via signals intelligence, sure. it just didn't exist. Yeah. Um, the well, jokes, that's, that's the, the danger the, of being siloed like that, right? Like once you just start thinking that this is the only type of reliable information because that's what I do and that it must be that important, right. you, you stop seeing the whole spectrum. Right. And it's a huge part, portion of it. I mean, make no mistake about it. Sure, for sure. Uh, especially if you're picking up signals of machines communicating to machines. Yep. Um, you know, so it was nice being able to see both sides of it. Sure. Um, I think that's interesting. I, I, I like the idea that you kind of have the, the background on there. One is more operational. Human is kind of an operational game because you're dealing with human beings. And then the other one is usually more a little bit more... Um, it can be more clandestine or covert because people are not necessarily aware that you're collecting them, even though we probably all should be aware that signals are out there and that we're broadcasting these things. But when you talk human, um, generally speaking, even even if they don't know they're being collected, uh, people at least know that they're speaking. And so that's, there's some kind of, you know, there's a little bit more game into it, I think, uh, when you start trying to, like running sources is always just kind of a trip on its own. Oh yeah, <laughs> as, as it goes. So, um, and then I was going to also mention too. Um, you, you're saying Fort Meade. So, folks who have been reading the Twitter files are going to be kind of seeing some of this stuff. Um, the intelligence community loves to do. Um, they love to be euphemisms. They like to talk around subjects if they can, but they're usually pretty obvious if you know what they're talking about. So, people will say Langley. A lot of people are familiar with that being the the CIA's headquarters or where they're working out of, um, and they'll call it OGA. Uh, but but Fort Meade is obviously the the kind of the the locational name that we give for for NSA and for working out of there, since that's where their their base of operations is. Um, how did you transfer over, or when did you transfer over? Uh, what sort of conditions and terms led you over to the FBI? Yeah, so I I joined up in in, in 2010. Um, my wife, uh, her daughter and son uh, live up here, and her daughter became pregnant with their first child. Mm-hmm. And my wife is a very highly trained seasoned nurse and um she uh she'd go wherever she wants to go mm-hmm. um with her skill set and she made the determination you know that she was going to move back to, you know, to help with you know her daughter and her newly developing family yeah um and i said well i'll i'll do my best to find a job in the intel community you know if i can and um i got lucky um i guess um, yeah, the, the FBI was, um, going through, uh, another 
series of changes, and hopefully we'll get into that in, in long form yeah. uh, regarding their Intel program. And um, so I landed in Boston as the National Security Intelligence Supervisor, and um, I had all three uh, national security programs, both counterterrorism, counterintelligence, and cyber. Okay. Um, and in my spare time for, for two years, on top of all that, I was also the co-supervisor for the Boston Marathon bombing. So, um, you know, uh, if you want something done, just give it to a busy person. Yeah, well, that's how it works. You give it to the lazy person. They have too much time. They don't do anything. And uh, j just for everyone's amusement, you reached out to me on Twitter and kind of sent me kind of a semi-cryptic message and said, uh, you know, vet me and, and then let's have a conversation if you're open to it. Uh, which only took me a few minutes because I was able to find somebody who sat very close to you that I trust. And uh, his feedback was that, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure he was in the Marine Corps and uh, he's a straight shooter and he was probably too straight of a shooter to be hanging out in Boston for too long. So uh, this was a, a friend of mine that uh, that I worked with and that uh, I spent a lot of time close to. And he said he used to, you know, see you at the coffee pot. So that's kind of funny. I'll, I'll leave his name out of this. It's probably not too relevant, but... But uh, yeah, so we so we came to that kind of conclusion, and and once again, you kind of threw the the quick and dirty out there that you'd been on the the marathon bombing, and just gave me enough to to run it down, which only like I said, only took a few minutes, which is kind of fun. It's such a, a small community in the FBI, um, particularly when you're you're dealing even on the, just the East Coast is like the easiest thing in well, the world. It, it's hyper small in that um, your reputation, good or bad, precedes you, and um, it, it's kind of like in the military and in, in, in infantry units, like you know before someone arrives um, whether you're happy to have that person right. whether you're not so happy to have that person. That's right. And then they let you know right away, sort of. Uh, by, yeah. you don't, they don't have to tell you. They just treat you the way that your reputation yeah. precedes you. Know. You know. Yeah. yeah, that's it. All right. So um, so let's talk about those three those three things that you got involved in, and we can talk about what they were spinning up for at the time. What you know, The FBI, you come in 2010. That's 15 years prior to me um, or 16 years prior to me. So your, your view on it's going to be a little bit longer form. And then also from the Intel side, uh, you're, you're hired on as a 14. So you're, you're a GS 14, you're a supervisor or you're, yeah. yes. yep. supervisor, and, yeah. and you've got how many squads of, uh, or how the, your organizational structure is different than mine. So yeah, no. So I had three programs. Um, so I have one squad. Okay. Uh, it was an I squad. Um, mm -hmm. at the time it was called I three, mm -hmm. um, since changed a couple iterations. Um, but at any given time I had, two to three dozen direct reports. Okay. And these are all IAs or SOS and MAPA or all? Uh, IA, IAs and SOSs. I did not have any MAPAs, um, but all IAs and SOSs. And um, when I came on board, um, SOSs were really starting to um, uh, earn their reputation. Uh, the agents were rapidly learning just how valuable those men and women were. Yeah, for uh, sure. Investigation. So, um, up, do you mind? Do you mind defining those roles for me too? So we've got intelligence analysts for those of you who are listening, and the and then we've got the uh, is it squad or staff operations specialist? Uh, staff operations. Specialist. Staff operations specialist. Okay, so SOS, and, 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 and I want you to kind of break them out. Sure. So the SOS on employee satisfaction surveys always are like at the top of the list. Personal rating. In terms of job, yeah, in terms of job satisfaction, they they really enjoy their jobs, mm -hmm. and they are more involved in the investigative aspects. Uh, uh, they're embedded on squads, yep. I typically, um, on an operational squad. Um, they have 
daily interaction with an SA in 1811, special agent 1811, mm -hmm. and the SSA also in 1811. Mm -hmm. And they get taskings for analysis and whether it's phone analysis, email analysis, internet research, um, and, and they call through as human beings, massive amounts of data. So, yes, uh, they're typically experts in pivot tables and Excel, uh, and separating literally mountains of chaff, uh, to, to get to the, the golden nuggets. Yeah. Uh, so they're incredibly, uh, valuable. And the Bureau, to its credit, you know, um, uh, recognizes that. Um, Sadly, doesn't pay them the way that I think that they probably should. Their pay scale tops out a little bit light, in my opinion. It does. Just, it does. Especially when, it, it, I mean, some of these guys come in. Thing. Yeah. So my so my my former SOS that I was a big fan of, and I've had a couple that have been, you know, mostly good. But uh, my the one that I would say that was great, uh, similar background uh, as far as. Marine Corps, he was an officer. I think he flew um, Cobra helicopters, which oh, sounds wow. pretty cool. Got a master's degree in, in national security studies of some kind from one of the universities where that sort of thing makes sense. And then, uh, you know, I would, he, he was, uh, and you mentioned like pivot tables and Excel and being able to manipulate data really well. So we would task him. And I just want to like let people kind of know the difference because when you talk about IAs, it'll make a difference for them. Um, you know, we would be like, Hey, I've got this subject. I think he's traveling. Like, what can you find out about where he's going? And he would always have database access, which is a really right. a big value because as an essay, I don't always have the, either the time, I don't have the, uh, the awareness to be able to sit there. I'm not going to always be at my desk to be able to access. And so he would comb through, whether it be something like text or he would look at like these different databases through state department and through DHS and so on and see, were there any border entries? Um, did this person come through customs? Did this person, you know, check into any of these types of uh, portals where there would be an ID scanned? And then he would get back to me like in, in operational time. Sometimes I'd be at the damn airport and he'd be running down to see if this guy actually made it on the flight. And if they do, and we have spotty coverage of some of that stuff, but you know, he would uh, reach out and do that. So that was kind of a big difference. And we would always call that sort of tactical intelligence. I don't know if yes, that's the term. Exactly. So, and these are important points and, and I don't want to get too ahead of you because I'm, I'm sure you have, you know, uh, a pedagogy here, how you want to go today. No, we're just freeform. It's, this is just oh, what comes okay. out of my head. So yeah, fire away. So, so in terms of tactical intelligence in the SOS, so in, in 2010, there was very little difference between an IA and an SOS uh, in terms of what they were doing. Mm -hmm. um, we had IAs that were doing essentially the same work as an SOS at $20,000 a year more right. and th three months of schooling more. And... In 2010, 2011, 2012, the IAs were just as happy as the SOSs, and there, but there weren't that many SOSs. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact year, but at one point in time, somewhere before I believe 2014, the FBI doubled the number of SOSs. So the the, the ideal construct would be there would be an SOS embedded on each investigative squad sure and what about what about educational backgrounds on these guys i mean are, are they comparable you think because oh, 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 yeah over educated um you know typical you know i'd say probably 50 50 mix uh, i'm sure that hrd uh human resources department would have the um or division would have the exact breakdown but i mean i'd say it's probably 50 50 master's bachelor's degree and mm -hmm. and a lot of people come in you know the sos is, a, is an entry-level position right and the goal is is to to go the agent route. Um, very few uh, people 
will come in as an SOS and then pursue the IA route. Mm-hmm. Um, Once they see the two roles in action kind of thing, I think. Especially now. Yeah. Um, so, so for about those first three, four years I was with the Bureau, the IA and SOS were almost indistinguishable in terms of what they were doing. Yeah. Um, sometime around 2014, 2015, the director of national intelligence, and I, I can't remember, it might have been Clapper at the time, I, I can't remember. No big deal. Uh, came out and said, hey, the other intel analyst at, at DIA and um, CIA, that those are the two big ones, you know, and then some other, you know, smaller entities like state and stuff, but, but the Jobs 0132 series, they produce X number of finished intel products per year mm-hmm. and your IAs are not right and this is, this is an important point because yeah define, define finished Intel products just so people kind of know what we're talking about so a, a tactical Intel product contains I want to choose my words carefully here not for classification reasons but just to be accurate yep it does not a tactical product really doesn't contain like analysis of what was learned it's just a, 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 ref, a refined amount of data that is in a more usable format that can be then used and synthesized with other data or other forms of intelligence, whether it's imagery intelligence or signals intelligence or source interviews, sure. and combined into a finished product where assessments are made based on evidence. So a tactical intel, yeah, a tactical intel product might be a one sheet that comes out that we can go and we can move forward with something, sit in front of an interview and be able to do, you know, have a little bit of background on the person, a little bit of where they've been, a little bit of what their money looked like, and so on. Their phone number, yeah, addresses, and, maybe you know, some imagery. But we're not trying to say finished, what that thing means per right. se. Right. It's it, but the finished intel product goes for that. Yeah. Okay. You Good. know what we're seeing in the. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, just making up words, but. What we're seeing in the totality is we have this, we have this, therefore that we can assess with low, medium, high confidence that this is, you know, this is our analysis and we base it on what. Yep. Um, so you're, you're hanging it out for, for to, to use a layman's term. Agree. So, so we're seeing that our IAs are not putting out as many because they're doing tactical intelligence because they're involved in actually doing the casework that the uh, the special agents are are assigned to to help and, and be part of and investigative. Right. right. So, so the DNI came back out and said, well, and and the FBI, um, the DI, the Director of Intelligence, came out and said, okay, um, you know, we'll settle. We we kind of negotiated with the DNI three finished Intel products. And, and that became part of their performance plan. And this is kind of how yeah. we got to term paper writers that only are rated on something like that, I imagine. But that's obviously down the line. That's that's when Largely. I Largely, yeah. yep, Lar- on that. And um, so their value to the agents then decreased commensurate with the amount of time that they were spending or the, the time reduced spending with the agents. For sure. So so the, the, the value to the agent of the Intel analysts, sorry, hiccups, um, went down, and the value of the SOS doubled in, in, in size in terms of headcount, um, and they were the ones that the agents would see every day, yep. you know, smiling, 
you know, eager, energetic, because they also have their sights on set on being agents as well. So, you know, you, you want to learn as much about the investigative process as possible. And there's no better place to do that than, than being an SOS because you're intimately involved in yeah. um, all, all aspects of the investigation. I, I found that to be very much the case. Obviously, I came in in, in 16. I, I first hit the field office at the end of 16 and early 17. That was my that was 100 percent my experience was that the SOS cared about it. And I had IAs that literally were assigned to our squad and they said, I don't do casework. And it's like, well, right. cool. Like, well, I don't do whatever you're doing. So I'm not going to be talking right. to you about anything. And don't try to right. task me. I don't work for you. I don't really right. care what you write. Like, knock yourself out. Go through my case files. But none of it matters to me because what I'm trying to do is investigate. And what you're trying to do at this point, and this is 2017, you're trying to write term papers. And they were brand new for, for the record. So they were they right. were literally steeped in that culture from the beginning coming right out of the academy. Right. Which is, and, and that's, that's a shame. And, and it wasn't, you weren't getting attitude from them. No, uh, no. It was just, that's how they got paid. That. It's like, that's their job. Yeah, that is. And so unfortunately the FBI really, and, and you know, they could have gone two routes. It sounds like they could have pulled all the IAs into headquarters and put them all into a place where they were doing analytical and just kind of running through Sentinel and looking at the field's products and then creating something that was finished and sending that out to the IC and then just washed us in, in uh, SOSs. But in typical government fashion, they just assumed that it would be fine by giving people, you know, putting them into a silo and thinking that everything will continue on. We just gave them some metrics to hit. It just turns out it's going to ruin their lives as far as the fun they were having and, and ruins the, uh, you know, the squad's dynamic too, because now you're not on my team. So who, right. who wants to talk to somebody that's not on my team? Right. And, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, we're human beings, we're, we're, we're social creatures mm-hmm. and to be siloed off um, and to have your interactions limited to, getting clarification question or, you know, asking agents clarification questions, uh, as opposed to being intimately involved in, in a big takedown right. uh, that may last a couple of years building and building. Um, it's, it's a big, it's a sea change. Right. Well, and when you get something, it's like, here's a, a request for collection. And I just think like, I don't know what that has to do with my life. So I know you yeah. want to know this, but like, it's not going to help me move forward in my cases. So I don't really care. So if I happen to get it, great. Um, but if I don't like, that sounds like a you problem, not a me problem. Cause we're not on the right. same team. And that, and I think that is where we get to that divide where the bureau gets really fractured. And you know, that's, that's some of the things that I've seen that I think are the problem, but, but obviously you, you got to see it from a supervisor's possession. Yeah. You can't say that out loud though, because not, not in the office. Have, you can't, you have to, you have to parrot the party line mm-hmm. ops, Intel, one team, one fight. You, you, you have to say that mantra you know, say it till you believe it. I mean, just say it. I mean, or until you uh, retire. <laughs> I, I think it was before you. Um, so Jim Comey um, had mandatory training. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of like a, a throwing everybody into a crock pot, uh, um, SIAs and, and um, SSAs. And basically saying, you know, you had to take online classes. And then I had to fly out to California for a series of classes which was, and it was basically this, I'm synthesizing it into, you know, not course language, but basic language. Uh, you will work and play well together. Right. This is, this is what, this, you will do this. To the point where um, they integrated my Quantico class in 2016, and I had uh, intelligence analyst trainees along with, mm-hmm. you know, the, the special agent trainees going with me. Mm-hmm. And we'd break off when we did firearms or anything physical, which is also kind of sad for some of them because some of them would have liked to do the PT and it, like they would have had a better understanding of our jobs. But then they were putting them into to interviews and they were saying, you know, they, they have to learn interview skills as well. And it's like, well, 
Um, no to that in reality, because if I'm going to go sit down with somebody who robbed a bank or I'm going to go sit down with somebody who's a jihadi, I may want the information that the IA has. But there's a reason why I want someone sitting next to me with a gun, because that person might be violent. They might be unstable. We're probably going into their own space. You know, so I, I would only see that being practical when we brought somebody into the field office and they'd already walked through a metal detector and we could go to an interview room and, and have a conversation. And, and you know, you, you try to include people on the team, but they gave a lot of them, I think, a false sense of what their job was. And then they got to the field and they found themselves very disappointed when they ran into, you know, a GS-14 who was telling them what the, the plan was. And it wasn't the plan that they got at the academy. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the reality uh, once you leave the schoolhouse is, is very different. I mean, I volunteered to be a field counselor and I went down to Quantico for a late spring uh, summer class. I was down there for about five months because I just wanted to see what this was all about. Mm -hmm. and, what, year, uh, what year was that? 2017, I think. Okay. Maybe I think around 2017. Um, it was uh, it was interesting. I don't know if the other branches use the terminology, but in the Navy we had a term called a self-licking ice cream cone. Yeah. Um, and that's what it was. It was just a, a giant self-licking ice cream cone, and you know this this is the party line, and these are the things that you need to say, and this is how you need to socialize people because. This is the academy, and, and I understand that, but there, there was a disconnect between reality, um, and there will always be a disconnect. Always, it's yeah, not, the schoolhouse is never going to be real. Yeah, but. It's, it's not personality-driven. It's just like that IA that, that wrote, like what you said, shelfware um, or book reports. Um, it wasn't <laughs> that, that that person was giving you attitude, right. or it's not that the SSA is you know, giving the Heisman to an IA. It's just that their roles and responsibilities are very different. Right. Yeah. So people have to understand they're just evaluated differently and their the metrics drive their paycheck and their paycheck drives their motivation in a lot of ways, especially once you've been there a while. Um, it's funny that, so the self-licking ice cream cone for people that are like functional human beings and haven't worked in the federal government, that is something that just exists because it exists. It, you know, the ice cream cone is there with the tongue to, because, because tongues need ice cream and, and, you know, ice cream needs a tongue. So the two things just sort of go around in a circle and, and there's no real functionality to it. There's no outside purpose. It doesn't drive towards anything. And I think, I think that would, um, I think that would accurately be sort of the discussion I had with my ASAC, which I'll share with you and you'll probably find amusing, but, um, you know, so I'm I'm an operations driven kind of guy. I, I joined up to be a uh, to be a special operator in the Air Force, and my goal was to be able to be kinetic and, you know, warheads on foreheads was kind of the the, the idea of being a JTAC. So you want to go downrange, you want to go do something. And then I ended up transitioning over to be a medic, and same kind of thing. It's like there's a hole I can you know what what do they say? There's a fracture I can fix it. Um, you know, there's an injured person I can find them. I can stop them from dying. You're trying to you know slow this the um, the spiral that we're all kind of on to to die. And uh, so when you're used to doing hands-on and you put your hands into a bullet hole before and you've, you know, done compressions on somebody and brought them back, which is not that common, um, and, you, you know, you've gone out there and kind of impacted the world directly with your own hands and your own mind, and then you get into an intelligence role, which is where I was at. I did, you know, Chinese CI for two years, and I, I didn't get it. There was no doubt about it. Like, I just, uh, it didn't compute. So I went to my ASAC and I said, you know, I don't really know what the heck we're doing here. And uh, I don't understand the mission. If you if you break down the mission, I'm pretty sure I could be good at it, but uh, I don't get it. And so he goes, well, what, what are you, what's your questions? And I said, well, okay, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I'm doing. Um, we're gathering information. And he goes, yeah. And I go, and that's as much as I understand. W what are we doing with the information? And he goes, um, well, then we're going to, you know, know a bunch more things. And I kind of gave him this look and I went, no, no, that's what, that's what we will have happen. 
but what are we going to do about it? Like, what is the action? What is the outgrowth and the, the forward movement from there? And he goes, well, we can use it to get more information. And I went, uh-huh. And, and what is this all in aid of? Like, what is the end goal? What is the state that we are trying to achieve? Are we trying to interrupt something? Are we trying to stop something? And and that was not really something that was on their plate, particularly in the type of squad I was in, because it was, even if it became a criminal case, they would have given it to somebody else. And so we were in this sort of like, it was called asymmetric, which I'm sure that's a catch-all for you're just doing things that you don't want to do. Um, so we did asymmetric collection, and, and I never really could get a good answer on it. And after two years of that, I just had to you know throw the... The, the the flag and I managed to get to a surveillance team where I watched bad guys do something and then they tried to arrest them and that that made a lot of sense to me so I mean obviously a simpler mind but thoughts on the... no I mean it, it changed it, it changed when the wall came down up until you know 1989 there were good guys and bad guys mm -hmm. and and uh, everybody on all sides recognized that there were things that we needed to protect from a technology standpoint um, then when the wall came down and then under the Clinton presidency. Um, it became, you know, one big, uh, you know, world economic forum, you know, that, that we were going to share everything and that peace was going to reign uh, if we just learned to share and get along. It was it was it was <sighs> almost like a romper room, you know, preschool kind of a now, you know, mindset, you know, like people don't know what romper room is anymore. <laughs> no, sorry. I, I was on romper room. I was I did one episode where I was on romper room. Okay. So, so, yeah, I know what it is. But it's it just, it, it, it was such an adolescent mindset that, that, yeah. that if we just, you know, share and, you know, so all the doe skin briefcases and the lawyers, you know, went throughout the world and, and China opened up mm -hmm. um, uh, to U.S. and we saw, you know, businesses move south of the border. And so the whole mindset changed as to um, technology protection, proprietary information, you know, all those kinds of things. And so that was just thrown open. So having had the Intel uh, counterintelligence program for a number of years, it, it really comes down to, um, I think the genie might, you know, is, is long out of the bottle. It, it CFIUS, and I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but it's basically a State Department entity that approves what can and cannot be sold to different countries. Mm -hmm layman's definition and then that's that's implemented by commerce i think for like the itar laws and all that kind of stuff is that right kind of, yeah. right exactly so, so, so that's the, that's the counter proliferation mission that right. you know and it's that's kind of rough to work because it's not fun it, it it's it's but it's almost everything's dual use technology that's so right. i mean we could just watch it sail out the door um from various companies around the country um you know so unless you're working actually in a a dod uh company department of defense company and i can't remember there's a there's a level of certification that they have to adhere to uh to protect their proprietary information uh mm -hmm. because a lot of it belongs to the u.s government um even though it was developed by say a raytheon engineering team right the u.s government paid for it and, and um, therefore so they have to access. protect it give um, give people you know, an example of dual use just for since we threw that out there as a term well any kind of microchip Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can use microchips for missiles and you can, you know, some of those microchips can be used. Um, we're talking about high end microchips, but, you know, can be used for high resolution uh, medical equipment. There you go. OK, um, so so for people's awareness, yeah, dual use just means that it's got a commercial ability to, to jump in and do something. But at the same time, you could turn around and use it on some sort of weapon system or some sort of military application. So dual use is civilian and military sort of. 
Okay. Yeah, so, you know, microprocessors, you know, the, depending on the speed of it, you know, may be used for uh, industrial machinery, um, for industrial control systems or, you know, SCADA systems. Um, but that same microprocessor could very well be used as part of a guidance system for, you know, a reentry vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, but it all comes down to CFIUS saying, oh, yeah, yeah, they're, they're going to use it for, for medical technology. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. In in a country that probably has like absolutely no medical facilities or any medical production facilities well, well, and things like that. Well, that's the other thing. They 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 use cutouts. So they right. they you know like I you know like so bef- when JCPOA the 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 deal that the the, the Obama administration uh, inked with Iran, mm-hmm. um, you know I I watched a certain group of people get rich before JCPOA and then I watched another group of people get really rich during JCPOA. For so, sure. I mean, it, it's. You know, it's 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 not almost not too dissimilar to what we're talking about, about IAs and SOSs and SAs having different roles. There are certain innumerable rules that can't be changed and the rule of supply and demand cannot be changed. Sure. If you're willing to pay for it, you can get it. Right. Other than enriched uranium. There's a market price for everything. That's right. And people use all kinds of different ways. And the low-level fruit stuff that we grab are people that are selling, you know, commercial night vision or thermal scopes. And they're sending them over, you know, and they're doing it through eBay or something like that. Or they're doing Alibaba sales. And then you get to the much more sophisticated stuff where people are actually smuggling out legitimately controlled items that are minimal dual use at all, if at all. And, and, you know, they're trying to run them out. But all that stuff is, like you say, if you're willing to pay for it, somebody's willing to take a risk to do it. If you're willing to pay high enough, somebody will take a risk to do it. Victor Boot made a good living doing it. Mm-hmm. So, you're you're you know seeing this sort of culture shift as you watched the uh, you know the IAs and the SOSs. You you kind of alluded to the fact that there was a job satisfaction survey differential. I bet that happened. What what did you see that look like, and how bad could it get? I don't remember all the um, you know the specific numerical values. I just know that there was a a, a large significant gap. Uh, between job satisfaction on, on SOSs and IAs. Um, I'm sorry, I, I just really never paid attention to any other job series. It just yeah, that makes sense. Really but S- SOSs kind of stayed still. Else. They stayed happy with what they were doing, and, and IAs oh, just lost their. They just lost yeah. their fun. Sure, um, and and IAs quit. Um, you know, I mean, if if you want to be an intelligence analyst for the IA, you, you got a pretty good shot at it now, nowadays. There are plenty of. I haven't checked recently, but I know up until a few months ago, there was plenty of job openings uh, open. I've graduated a couple students from my grad program uh, where I teach, um, you know, and I'm just paraphrasing one, but they said, why would I want to be an intelligence analyst in an organization where everybody's bailing out from being an intelligence analyst? Yeah, it should be a good indicator. I mean, if you just need a job, that's a different animal. If you're looking for some career satisfaction um, and for people that don't have a lot of awareness of that, it's not like it's it's not Jack Ryan. Jack Ryan is a is, is a fun fantasy for us to think about, right? Uh, it's just That's just not how it's going to go down. You're, you're no. not going to send that guy out into the world, not in any intelligence service. They're just not doing it. No. Uh, hey, even your your standard grunt ground pounder spends a lot of time sitting on concrete waiting for planes that don't show up. I mean, that's right. Throwing not, throwing rocks not, into a helmet. Yeah, it's not all high speed low drag. Yeah, fair enough. So you know, obviously the culture was kind of the thing that I think you and I hit on when we talked about what was going wrong. And when you start having people bail out, you you attract a certain different type of people. Did you see a sea change in sort of the either the quality of the applicants that were coming in or 
the ideology of the applicants kind of like what did you see as far as the way yes that the yes. bureau so okay. yeah so i was involved in the hiring process you know for for years at the bureau and you know what i saw was you know people coming in that have to list their pronouns um with you know very high level uh, master's degrees in, in international studies no like hard sciences mm-hmm. you know like my, my undergraduate degrees in finance i'm a you know, I'm a numbers and data guy. Mm-hmm. Um, my master's is in marketing. Again, numbers and data. What 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 can I prove um, through empirical evidence? Um, now it's all you know, political science and international relations, um, which may be okay if you want to work at the State Department. Mm-hmm. Um, but but an an analyst ideally um, should almost be born uh, a critical thinker. Uh, should always be uh, thirsting for for more information, has an insatiable appetite for information, saying that there's just there's just not enough. Um, but then also have the courage to then say, okay, I, I'm 90% of the way. Here's my analysis. Right, because um, you can't do it forever. We, right, but but what we have now is is a younger generation uh, that has arrived over the last five six years um, with soft degrees. Mm-hmm. And, and that led inevitably, obviously, it sounds like to the opposite of, of, of the critical thinking. It's more, it's more feels they're, they're much more comfortable with less data. Is that kind of the thing or what? Uh, it's like perfunctionary, um, because like the finished Intel products have a very strict format that you have to hit, uh, in order to get them published. Um, so I, I see it at college. I saw it at the bureau. Um, when it comes time to then brief that Intel product. Like they don't know like in their gut all the way down to the core of their being what it is that they just wrote about. Interesting. You know, it's, 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 it's the difference between reading a book or reading a book with a highlighter and post-it notes. Mm Mm-hmm. They just skim the surface of it. They kind of they're kind of running through. They've got a general gist, but they're not real confident. I always felt like the the IAs that I dealt with, at least in the last two years, three years or so, were very anxious people um, about what their work was. They, there was like a, a sense of inadequacy, and I don't maybe maybe that's part of it. But they would kind of like go, oh, uh, you know, is this is this what needs to be done? And they were also I don't know that very many of them were really passionate about writing what I've always said term papers. You know, they write term papers for a living, and so. I'm not sure that that's what they thought they were getting into. Now they're in a role where that's something they have to do. Uh, obviously, some people took to it like a you know a fish in water, but but a lot of them did not. Oh, and... it's it's a, it's a it's an easy job um, <laughs> if if you learn what to do. Um, it, it's it's you know it's it's maybe you know it's not even a forty hour a week job. I mean you can you can make it that way. I mean you sure. can do more if if you want to, and if you have a good supervisor. Um, who lets you maybe move out of your lane a little bit. Like me as a supervisor, um, you know, I, I barely would paint the lanes in the road for my IAs um, because I'm not a touchy-feely guy, as, as your friend in Boston will attest to, mm-hmm. um, but I do believe in the following formula. Do you have the right amount of work? Not too much, not too little, and that the work that you do, is it intellectually stimulating? If you have the right amount of work 
and that it's intellectually stimulating, you're a happy person. If you're a happy person, the SSA that you're supporting is happy. The ASAC is happy with his SSA, and I'm happy. And, and, and that's where I was always going towards. What was, uh, what was your success rate? Uh, maybe did that change at all, especially as you kind of went from 2010 to when you left? I mean, did people appreciate that management style or was that? Oh, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Especially my high performers. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you know, some of the feedback that I would get on my 360 uh, evaluation was that, you know, that, that I did a good job of keeping stupid people away from them. <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah, I like and that. I, I took that as probably the highest praise I think I've ever received. Well, that, that is the job. I mean, I think you, you probably saw that, um, that's a Marine Corps thing to learn. That's a enlisted military thing to learn, which is that, you know, there's somebody that's doing, and then there's, you know, different levels of NCOs that are management and their job is to keep people away from the people that are doing so they can do it and kind of be the, you know, the, the shield, the deflector, use those chevrons to do, you know, just keep everybody off from underneath them and, and let them do their damn job. Yeah, no, I mean, um, like, so when I got out, uh, in the Marine Corps in 1989, um, there was, you know, a couple series of books out, like a passion for excellence and search of excellence. Like the whole business thing was starting to get ramped up and, right. and I devoured everything I could get my hands on. And I read a lot from, you know, Ross Perot and someone had asked Ross Perot, you know, what is your, you know, key success factor? And he said, it's pretty simple, really. I, I hire the very best people that I can, and then I leave them to hell alone and let them do the job. That's right. Yeah, that was the old and, EDS model. Yeah, and in the government, you're you're you inherit people by and large, and I developed a means to encourage those people to seek employment elsewhere within the bureau. Um, that you just. You're just not part of my team. I like that. Um, That's a very nice way of saying that. So, you know, so you inherit people, for lack of a better word, you drive out your your poor performers. You Mm -hmm. you make them want to leave because you've set expectations and you make it clear to them through the performance review process, you're never going to meet this expectation. So you can continue and I'll just continue to make your life a living hell or you can get your stuff together or, you know, maybe there's some other IA openings that you might want to. And there always your is. Options in. Yeah, there yeah, always so, is. And unfortunately, I think that you were probably the minority in that type of operational, you know, uh, mentality. That just wasn't that wasn't the standard that I saw when it came down to things. Um, you know, people didn't drive them out. They just accommodated them. I had I had support, you know, employees that. uh You'd go and tell them like, this is your job description. I'm really actually helping you out. This is, I mean, I would do this. I would go and print out their freaking job description. And then almost every position in the bureau has a, uh, a roadmap on how to get promoted and what you should learn and how much you should know at different stages. And that's the true for the OSTs, which is the secretary role and the MAPAs who are another kind of lower entry level support. But if they didn't, you know, have anything of value to me, I wanted to make them valuable because everybody wants to be part of a team, at least in my world. So you'd show them, yeah. you, sh- you show them what that roadmap looks like. And, uh, you know, I had several pushbacks where they went straight to the boss and cried and just said, uh, you know, Kyle's mean and he's trying to tell me to do my job and uh, I don't want to do my job. Like, you know, I'm a secretary and he just gave me 500 pages from an NSL, a national security letter subpoena. And I, he wants me to scan it into the file. And he didn't even give me a deadline that said it had to be immediate. He just said, like, you know, sometime in the next couple of weeks, put this to the file. And I don't want to do that. And so they would come to me and they go, you don't tell people what to do. And it's like, oh, 
Okay, I'll be a hundred thousand plus dollar a year employee that's just sending things into a copy machine then for the next couple days because that's what you want of me. That's fine. Like, but I can't work here. Um, because yeah, but so I think so many people covered for that sort of attitude, uh, and I can imagine that that bristled some. But people who want to perform want to perform, so that, that's kind of great. Yeah, no, it is. What it is. Look, I'm look. I'm, I'm, there's nothing I can hide. You can see my ugly old face. You know, I was raised in old school. You know, when I went in the Marine Corps, all my drill instructors were all Vietnam vets. Mm-hmm. All my NCOs, when I went through various schools, were all. Vietnam vets, um, these were not a tolerant, friendly, warm and fuzzy group of people. Um, they were demanding, (laughs) you know, um, it turns out it, it it kind of, uh, people like to be demanded if they want to perform and the people that aren't going to perform are just going to seek a softer billet. I wonder this too. Um, We've seen uh, people are kind of getting a little glimpse of this, I think, in a more popular culture now because of the way the Twitter files came out and the fact that they're source documents and the fact that the Bureau and, and some other entities were putting uh, Intel products into the hands, which has always happened. People should know that. Like, we always distribute some unclassified Intel products that are targeted for that particular industry. Uh, but people are kind of seeing it. And I'm wondering, is there a culture of accountability if your assessments are drastically incorrect i mean how much are how much are people in the and particularly in the fbi i'm interested you know what is if if we assess with a high degree of confidence or a medium degree of confidence that fill in the blank and fill in the blank never happens which was an experience i had quite a bit um you know are you berated is it like that was a good term paper do it again and come up with something better how does that play out you think i've never i've never seen anybody held accountable for anything like that is that is that I'm weird? Saying, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm yeah, but is that weird? There's 52 field offices. I'm just saying I've, I've never seen it happen. It seems so strange to me that if your entire gig is that you are supposed to analyze things that come in with you know some degree of certainty, and that's what your training is, and that's why we hired you, um, it just seems like there should be some sort of expectation that most of the time you should be right <laughs> or better than 50-50 or like otherwise why what do you, what's your purpose? So let's let's talk about this for a second because yeah. there's probably going to be somebody watching this video and says, "Hey, wait a minute. Well, I know what happened during the April 15th on the Boston Marathon bombing. You know, the, the agent didn't run down the Guardian lead properly. Um, so just for the interest of full and fair disclosure, let's do it. Yeah, I was the guy who signed off on the threat assessment that has to be done for every major event. Okay, me. I didn't write it, but I approved it. Mm-hmm. And it was one of my best IAs, um, has a long history, uh, working closely with the Boston police department. Um, and the bottom line is, is there were no known threats to the Boston marathon bombing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Off. So r- remind me of the year. Cause I know I've got it in my head, but I, it's not accurate. All <sighs> I can remember is 2015 dude, or, or, uh, April 15th. I mean, right. It, it, it's still painful. Um, no, I'm sure. So, so yeah. So the background probably on that 20, is 20, 2016, probably somewhere. It, I feel there. like it might've been a year or two earlier than that. But I'm sure somebody's checking it. Right yeah, now. that's fine. And they can. And, and so anyway, you can comment on the uh, video and we'll, we'll acknowledge yeah. that you used Google better than we did while we were talking. Um, yeah. so, okay. So the assessment, so kind of walk people through what that looks like. What does a threat assessment look like for a big event like that? Sorry, I'm leaning from my so mic. You, you, we, went, we go through everything. So you go through... And these happen the every year for all these things. 
every event. Yeah, yeah, whether it's the the Pops Fourth of July ceremony or the the Super Bowl parade right. or the Boston Marathon bombing. Right. If you got World Series do, games happening, if there's yeah, a bunch of people, yeah, then the FBI yeah. does a threat assessment of yeah. it and tries to make it yeah. safe. And and you do a deep dive on on everything. So mm-hmm. you go everything from the national level intelligence all the way down to police reports coming in around the region through the Guardian system. Okay. And tell people what the Guardian system is. I've mentioned it a little bit, but I've never really broken it down. The Guardian system is nothing more than a mechanism that law enforcement uses to call to the attention of the FBI uh, something that requires an individual that requires closer scrutiny, possibly at the federal level, right. mostly in the realm of, of terrorism or domestic terrorism. And so during the time, uh, the highlight, the high watermark of ISIS, you know, we, the Guardian numbers were outrageous because we had a lot of people in this country thinking like, hey, this ISIS thing looks pretty cool. Um, so we had a lot of aspirational uh, jihadists. Um, so you, you, you comb through everything. Right. Um, and you and can the volume only, is, can, can, I mean, it ebbs and flows, but it can be overwhelming because this is national and then it's coming sure. in from, from what, NTOC, like the National Threat Operations Center? And, sure, and then also NTOC, it'll come from uh, you know, the, the uh, FBI's own uh, uh, CTD counterterrorism directorate sure. um, at the national level. So anything. So you yeah, and then, local, and then local PD sending it off too, saying, hey, like do some, you know, right. so we're getting all of it from that. So just so people know, the right. volume could be pretty incredible and almost always it's nothing. I mean, right. the, the overwhelming number. So, I mean, so I don't want to sound callous because it was, it was, it was actually very, you know, a horrible time for for me and a lot of other people and obviously people died so a much horrible time for them yes um but i was confident um that when i laid my head on the pillow and signed off on that 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 i we submitted an accurate document and the um inspector general's office for the department of justice came to the same conclusion uh they reviewed the entire thing this is the the post uh, the after action they did on you yes, guys yep. yeah yeah and so, so you guys were and, there's only so much you can know right and, you know, so then if, if that happens, then, well, then what needs to change from our collection posture? Well, more about that later. Yep. Um, but they also looked at, um, they got played out in the news, um, the agent who uh, had to respond to the guard, the, to the lead that was, wasn't a lead, actually was an, a, an RFI request for information that came from uh, Russia, from Russian intelligence. Hmm. Um, uh, oh crap! I'm blanking on the uh, domestic component of it. It's not the SVR, but um, oh, is that GRU? To run that down. No, is it? I'm trying no, to remember I too. Yeah, I think I think I got them backwards. I think I think I think S, uh, SVR is the the domestic that you're thinking of. Oh, it is. Okay, it's maybe that's, it's SVR. So it, I didn't so, do Russia specifically, but I was always around those. I think that's right. I think GRU so, is the their external facing. So the IG, you know, went through that whole Guardian process, you know, because that was entered into Guardian when, when the lead, uh, the RFI came in from Russia, you know, and the media widely reported it, uh, especially a woman by the name of Michelle McVie, a local hack up here in Boston, um, that, that, that it was a heads up from Russia. Right. Uh, and look, I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'm, I call balls and strikes. You know, if, if the FBI needs to get a strike called on them, I'll call a strike. If it needs, if it's a ball, it's a ball. Yep. Uh, you know, there's a process. It's, it's outlined in the DIOG, the, the, uh, the Domestic uh, Intelligence Operational Guide. It's, it's outlined in there how a guardian needs to be worked. And the agent who 
was assigned that guardian complied 100% with the guidelines set forth uh, in that guardian. Right. Um, and and so people so, can kind of understand because it's and I've obviously been on the other end of it. You're on the analytical to decide whether, you know, what the, the level of threat is and and how much you want to, you know, add weight to it. But when it gets to someone like me and you send it out, it's like, you know, this person made a threat, whatever it is, threat to life, you know, whatever, or a terrorist threat and so on. So we would go out and do an interview I'm, um, or not, depending on what the level of the information was. If the information was, you know, this guy's a real jerk and, and he seems to be, uh, you know, wearing a Speedo when he mows his lawn. Because those kind of things come in and, you, and you know, he's not right. He's going to do something dangerous. You go, man, not really a federal crime to wear a Speedo. I mean, it might be an eyesore, um, but it sounds like you should make a friend of who's a neighbor. So a lot of times we can throw these things out that are complete garbage. And then sometimes they require a little bit of analysis. And sometimes they require a little bit of, a, you know, either a, an investigation, a pre-investigation type technique. But a lot of times they're not. Like there's so many. The volume is so high. It's like. Yeah, it gets, so it, it gets even lost. some of my colleagues, you know, gave me a hard time, you know, right afterwards that were pretty upset about what happened. Sure. Understandably so, but, you know, I'll explain to them, there is no Chechen diaspora here in the Boston area. Yes, there are some people from Chechnya, but Russia checks up on all Chechen expats, people mm. from Chechnya who are living outside of Russia, because they view the entire population of Chechnya as a threat. Right. It was Vladimir Putin when he was head of the KGB who brought the Chechens to heel uh, back during their troubles in the 90s. Mm -hmm. So um, I have to look at it from an analytical perspective, from an intelligence perspective. You know, do we have a large Chechen diaspora and what has been the level of activity, lawful or otherwise, uh, in the Boston area? And it was a donut. There's yeah. nothing. Yep. Um, you know, and hopefully I'll have an opportunity to bleep this out, but I need to use this word anyway. There's a scene in the movie Airplane 2 where the, the woman says, well, maybe he's just an asshole. I mean, look, some people are just a-holes. They, they just are. Um, and he really was one. Todashev was an even bigger one. Yeah. Uh, who we wound up getting shot during an interview when he came in our agent with a sword. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean. But that's not a federal crime. It turns out. Yes. And that's that's the so, thing that's so hard for people to grasp, too. It's like just because let, let someone me, is unhinged like that doesn't mean that we have any nexus to operate, nor do you want the FBI operating just because we've got some a-hole out there doing something that, that you don't personally like or that even the Russians have flagged as right. a potential problem. Right. I mean, we had CCTV footage of, of a parking lot incident between Todashev and uh, another gentleman, uh, middle not but quite middle-aged, but like 40 years, some years old with his teenage son, Todashev just beat the living crap out of both of them over like a parking lot incident. The guy was just an a-hole. Yeah. Um, you know, so getting back to that, staying on that, you know, staying on the Guardian, staying on accountability and things of that nature, because mm -hmm. it's important to this discussion. And I would have conversations about this with some of my other intelligence professionals at the Bureau. And, and we were mostly people closer to my age group understood it. Mm -hmm. When I was coming up in the Marine Corps back in the 70s during the height of the Cold War, national security met the continuation of the United States and the protection of the Constitution and the freedoms enshrined therein. That's what national security meant. Right. When a politician says, my number one job is the safety of the American people, they're either lying or they're ignorant. Right. Their number one job is to protect the Constitution of the United States. On September 12, 2001, that changed. 
it became national security became no American shall die at the hands of a terrorist. That is not national security. And that yeah. is why we're in the situation that we're in today with some of these abuse, some of them, with these abuses that we're seeing. That's really, I mean, I think that's a really interesting, hard point to put on it. The definition of national security is when it morphs and changes. And one of the things, and, and it coincides with something I said last night, and I've said a couple times this week now, is I'm kind of like beating this little drum that I found. And that is that uh, freedom is dangerous. That's the nature of our society, that we accept a certain amount of risk, right? Um, that's why people are allowed to own guns, but some people choose to abuse guns. Like mine's not abusing anybody. It just hangs out there. It doesn't bother anybody. And if I, you know, occasionally it shoots a coyote. But when you have a scenario that you have dangerous freedom, the, the alternative to that is like safe totalitarianism or safe authoritarianism, and that's tyrannical. And so all those things, it may be safe because nobody's allowed to do anything bad, but freedom is dangerous. And that's sort of the gamble that you have by being in a society that we have. And when you change it to nobody's going to get hurt, now you got the nanny state stepping in and the nanny state has all kinds of terrible ideas and all kinds of terrible tools to use them, it sounds like, too. But. All right. So so let's take this 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 conversation a little bit further, because I think this is where we wanted to go when we yeah, first talked. For sure. Which is that Congress created this with the Patriot Act, the expansion of FISA and the expansion of FISA and FISA 702. Um, which then roped in the National Security Agency. Right. And again, I'm going to call balls and strikes. I'll, I'll, I'll criticize where the FBI deserves it, and I'll praise them where they where they do. Um, look, the FBI is no different than any other uniform military service. The Congress with the Patriot Act gave them a mission. They gave them a domestic intelligence capability. George Bush challenged Bob Mueller. Bob, he told Bob Mueller, he said, I know you're going to find the people who did this, the 9-11 attack. Mm -hmm. What I want to know, Bob, is what are you going to do to stop the next one? And that was the genesis. That was the very beginning of how we got to where we're at today of this minority report-like manner of law enforcement, where we're trying to do predictive uh, analysis of when a crime is going to be committed. Right. We're moving um, to the pre-crime. And, and you gave the analogy to me, too, that I liked. And, and this is like a junkie and a pusher. Do you mind kind of fleshing that story out? Like, you know, who's who in that in that analogy um, with people being, you know, that the, the way the intelligence mission sort of uh, evolved and why, you know, who's at fault and why? Okay, so... Hopefully I'm not throwing you on the spot because that was I think that was your analogy. I, I don't think that's mine, but I remember. Yeah, it I don't out remember the, the junkie and the pusher analogy, but but uh, but I know where you're or going. Or you know, like an addict um, and, and and giving him a drug kind sure. of thing. So that same so, same idea. So yeah, so look, because it kind of dovetails with what I was starting to say, which yep. is that the FBI is going to salute smartly and say, "Yes, sir, we could we can do this," or "Yes, ma'am," if we have a female president. Sure, they're going to say we can do this, and they're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Um which is no American shall die at the hands of terrorism. And, and that was the mission. Mm -hmm. And it was wildly successful um, in terms of our counterterrorism strategies. Mm -hmm. um, one can argue that the war in Iraq had a, a, had a, had a beneficial effect, that we you know, killed them over there rather than here. That's a topic for a whole other time. For sure. Um, but the bottom line is, and I know because I teach this in college, mm -hmm. I, I research, I read, um, and I actually have a couple of test questions on it. And, and I'll ask the class, you know, like, how come there hasn't been a major terrorist attack on the United States since 2001? And there's a couple correct answers. The easiest one is, is we don't know. Some of the other more nuanced answers are 
Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is in Gitmo. If you've ever read the book Mastermind, which I highly recommend, uh, you'd have a deeper understanding of what I mean by that's one of the reasons we haven't had a major terrorist attack. Mm-hmm. KSM is in Gitmo, and, and hopefully he'll die of old age down there. Who wrote the uh, uh, Who wrote Mastermind? We can come me. back. We can come back to it. Someone can put that in the comments too. Give us two yeah. facts checks. Tell us the year of the uh, Boston bombing, and then tell us who wrote uh, Mastermind. Two little nuggets. Uh, but a, a, a fascinating book. Mm-hmm. Um, it says KSM is in jail. Yeah. And. And I know it sounds like a simple thing, but there's nothing wrong with KISS. Keep it sweet and simple, or short and simple, or keep it simple, stupid, however you want to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, the hardening of airplane cockpits. Mm-hmm. And people can, you know, take a dump on the TSA all they want, but at the end of the day, the bottom line is is they are a, a deterrent, no more different than a set of jersey barriers in front of a gate causing people to have to zigzag. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and that's really, you know, how we got to where we're at today from a, uh, an international terrorism standpoint. Mm-hmm. Well, now we have to create a whole nother boogeyman, the domestic terrorism, because we have to keep this machinery going. Yes. We need the money. So I, I, I am getting to your question. I know, we I can hear, I can see money. where you're going. Yeah, so we need the money, we need the SES positions, we need the expansion, we need more authorities, we need more cooperation from the FISA court. Um, and we we need some of these shackles moved because no American must die. Right. How um, many how many so, SES positions were created? You told me this, and I thought it was yeah, surprising. So, yeah, so when, when the FBI... If I said it already, I apologize for repeating it. The 0132 cadre that the FBI has is not owned by the FBI. You have not said they that are yet. The, they are the property of the Director, Director of National Intelligence. Can you say that just they one were, more time for people? Because I think that also is another big piece when you're serving two masters. Yeah, the 0132 cadre does not belong to the FBI. And that's the, all of they our intelligence are. analyst people. That's your yes. supervisory and so yeah. on. They report up uh, dual chains, essentially. Well, they're they're on loan from the director of national intelligence. Right. They're co-located the DNI, with the FBI. If but... the DNI can come in and say, you need to write three finished intelligence products, you're still beholding to the DNI. That's right. Yeah, no, I just think that's a really uh, important distinction for people to understand. When we talk about like why the Bureau is broken in a lot of ways, it's because it's not necessarily even FBI culture that is influencing FBI work. Obviously, it gets put into the building, and once it's there, things are different. But the fact was, that they're operating under um, DNI. Look, I'll, I'll, I hate to say it, but probably half the people that watch this video have never read the 9-11 report. There was a lot of discussion um, leading up to that, whether or not we were going to create a domestic intelligence program. Right. And it was decided by the committee that we're not going to have a, a, a U.S. version of MI5, which is the British counter, uh, British intelligence, uh, domestic intelligence program. Yep. Instead, we're going to lash it up to the FBI, staying with that initial conversation between George Bush and Bob Mueller saying, what are you going to do to protect against the next one? Right. Okay, well, here's your answer. We're going to give you an intelligence cadre. So now we're going to do predictive analysis, and we're going to disrupt crimes before they even happen. Yep. And and, and just for just for simplicity's sake, like my way in is that that was probably a death blow, or at least it's a fatal millstone that they're still swimming against. Is that sort of something you believe as well? I very strongly. Uh, I, I I I have plenty of evidence that I could submit to you know not in this forum, but. The F the the intelligence cadre has poisoned the FBI and and changed it from 
this more pure form of an investigative law enforcement entity mm-hmm. into a domestic intelligence service that is unconstrained and was unshackled by the Patriot Act and the expansion of FISA 702. Okay. And we so we share that sort of belief, I think. And I think that's part of why we got along on that. Um, I, I don't want to derail you from the number of SES positions they added from uh, from DNI. They, 20. They gave, they gave the FBI 20 positions, uh, SES positions, all of which were filled by 1811s. Uh, agents people got to know that's a big deal so now you've opened up basically um you know you've opened people getting them off the gs scale they're now low no longer beholden to the 175,000 or so whatever it is 168 to 175,000 dollars that they're otherwise capped at SESers are are at a higher pay scale number one they've got bonus structures number two and now that's 20 more fbi agents who can jump into the senior executive ranks because of this particular thing so it's about money in this case which we're Going that are that are misrunning an intel program and they misran it for a number of years and um I'd like to be able to flag that because we we have to get back to that um but they misran it for for uh once that uh intelligence uh, capability was created for a number of years so basically no disrespect to plumbers but you you basically said hey we're going to make all these electrician plumber supervisors <laughs> they don't know anything about plumbing that's right it, it's it's not the same job no you know investigation and analysis are two completely different disciplines so i asked bob Mueller about this right to his face i said you know why are there no uh 0132 ses's mm-hmm. and now that mix has changed there's quite a few of them now in in fairness yep uh but, I don't think they're in the right places necessarily either. That's the other dumb thing about it. But no, so be it. not exactly the best and brightest either. But that's that's I don't fair want to too. The bad mouthing people, but sure, um, not all. But um, but he said, well, when you show me an O one thirty two qualified, I'll put them in that position. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, well, we'll screw you too, Bob. <laughs> yeah, you he's know? looking right in your face. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, all right. So um, nice meeting you, and. Um, you know, and then the people ask me, like, how come you didn't smile when you had your picture taken with the director? Oh, man. Maybe because he's an a-hole. I don't know. But uh, That might be the case. There's a lot of uh, yeah. evidence to that. So so they were filled with SESs. And up until, I think, 2006, um, the FBI, and I'm sure somebody's going to correct me, but, and I wasn't there in 2006, so I'm going on what people told me and then looking at documents. And, of course, that was 15 years ago, so my memory's kind of shaded by now. Sure. But KPMG is a high-level consultancy group, and yes. they rolled out the, a program called SET, S-E-T, <clears throat> which essentially created what people would begin to recognize as the intelligence program as it exists today where you would have a, a dedicated, it was called a FIG, a field intelligence group. Yes. And, you know, a smattering of SOSs, and the the FBI had already been on a hiring binge. Basically, anybody coming out of the sandbox with an intelligence background could be an 0132. Um, and so they came out with SET in 2006. And in... And I'm probably going to get the years wrong, but, you know, and I'm sure some genius on Rumble will crucify me, but that's okay. Um, So it's 2023 now. So probably around 2013, 2014 timeframe, SET wasn't working out. 
and they partnered up with um, Price. Might have. I'm not sure if it. Oh, McKinsey. Okay, the other one. Yeah, I believe it was McKinsey, and this is where they created the whole um, FOSP, FOSP, and TRP process. We can come back to that too, and just kind of, I kind of outline it because yeah. that's that's its own animal. Essentially, basically assessing, creating a mechanism, a formal mechanism where you heuristically, which means rule of thumb, heuristically, you get to decide how awesome you are. Yes. And so out with one consultancy group, in with another. Um, I'm not going to name names. He's no longer with the Bureau. He was unceremoniously uh, shuffled out the door. Um, but this gentleman had the lead on implementing uh, that program. So you gave the rank and file the means to quantify without quantifiable data what success is and then depending on how awesome you were the SAC gets a bonus at the right. end of the year do you have any insight into what those bonuses i, I heard one the other day so it was like a $30,000 bonus which doesn't sound insane by any means but i've heard people can even like get close to you know matching their own salaries does that sound accurate to you i have i, I have no idea i'm not okay. even going to spitball it um these yeah, are already just, pretty healthy salaries that these people are doing. And essentially, they're like um, administrative managers sitting behind a desk and, and figureheads, in my experience. Like, they're right. not, it's not like they're doing anything on the ground. Like, you say, oh, like, you know, Steve D'Antuano, like, he ran the, the Whitmer investigation. Like, no, he got briefed on it whenever he got briefed on it, which was probably not all that often, to be fair. Um, and I'm, right. I'm, I'm, I, he didn't make operational decisions like somebody else did. Probably, probably one of the ASACs kind of approved those, but. You know, so it's kind of like saying, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, George Hill, I'm going to sign him up for the New York Yankees and I'm going to pay him <coughs> six million, six million a year. Yeah. And, um, so in order to get that six million a year, George, um, what do you think you can hit in years one, two, and three? Right. Uh, I'm, I'm good for 260. No one, I'm going to hit 275. Right. Okay. We'll put you down for 260. Mm-hmm. End of the year comes. I come in at a, at a nice 275, 277, and I get a little bonus kicker at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've created, and it, I'm telling you, on paper, the charts and the graphs, I mean, you get what you pay for with McKinsey. I mean, it looks beautiful, but it's all rule of thumb. Like, yeah, I think, you know, we get X number of sources, we can mitigate this threat, and we need to write X number of IIRs. I think we can mitigate this threat. Um, so it's, you know, and it, it, you go around the tables like, yeah, it sounds good. That sounds good. And right. of course, and then, everybody's, agreeing. and then somebody else has to sign off on what a mitigation looks like. And the person who's signing off on it is the guy who's getting the bonus for it. Right. I mean, well, he's the ultimate sign off. Sure. But, um, uh, the, each directorate, whether it's cyber or counterintelligence, they all have their program manager mm-hmm. and they sign off on it as well. Um, and you, you're right back to the self-licking ice cream cone. It's like, Hey, how do I look? Yeah, you're looking good. Yeah, you're looking. Hey, uh, that's, you're going to be by the way, next week. <laughs> that's it. Because they all know they want to move to that next level. So you don't want to stab the right. guy above you. You want to give him an opportunity right. to give you an opportunity. Um, by the way, that sounds like what my uh, my grandmother, who is uh, has Alzheimer's and is in a mental care facility, like whenever she talks to my mom, it's just 
you know, two old ladies just saying like, you look really good. Like, oh, you look really good. It's exactly that, except it's people, uh, you know, playing with government tax dollars for their salaries and that are actually looking for something at the end of it, which is the kicker is, is that you got hired to be the next ASAC from the section chief for this, this program manager job. So, right. So, so that I don't sound like a, a ne'er do well or malcontent. I am a certified ISO 9000 auditor. I got that when I was in the private sector working in the chemical industry in between military careers. Mm-hmm. Anybody can go out and see what it requires to be an ISO certified facility, and they can go out and look and see what it takes to become an ISO 9000 certified auditor. Mm-hmm. But basically, in layman's terms, it's establishing a baseline and then a process for continuous improvement. All of that is numerically driven, it's quantitative. McKinsey and this gentleman who's no longer with the Bureau took that idea, that concept, and they say, we'll decide what the baseline is. Okay, yeah, okay, that's good. Okay, and then we'll just work up there and each successive year will be more awesome than the last. Yeah. So just, yeah, under all circumstances, it just doesn't actually, uh, there's no actual quantifiable way to measure this stuff. By the way, you can name names here. That's kind of what people people get excited about hearing because I, I think one of the problems we have too is that, uh, and, unless there's a good reason, and I, I'm not going to ask you to specifically, just don't feel like you're compelled to defend anybody's name. Um, you know, the question always comes down to how do we, um, sorry, I may have, did I just glitch out for a second? Yeah, you, you kind of. That's what I get it for kind of max headroom to be there for. Yeah, time. sorry. Yeah, so what I, what I'm getting at is that uh, you know people one a lot of people's complaint is is that the bureau tends to defend names of people who have left. We let them walk off, and I'm not sure that's a value to the American people who are paying for all well, this stuff. The, but well, you, the like, guy who led the charge was was, was a gentleman by the name of Dave Slendor. That's who I thought it was, by the way. <laughs> and um, your video just is, froze for a sec, so bear with me. I'm going to try to see if it'll kind of stay on here for us well you may be frozen for a few minutes we'll see if it'll kick back in but i can hear you great so keep going okay so so dave led that charge and he's i you know i reached out to him on linkedin for a friend request and he he has he's ignored me um but i'm a little brokenhearted <laughs> but um but then again peter struck blocked me on twitter too so um i guess i'm in good company um but he's at some uh, high-priced firm right now, so you know, good for him for earning a, a great living. Um, but my point is, when I point, when I, you know, in, in, in highlighting the FOS, the whole TRP process, and heuristically assigning what a good job looks like, this is in response to the DNI saying, "Hey, we gave you this cadre. What determines success?" And up until that point, success was, well, we haven't had any more large-scale terrorist attacks here in the United States. Okay, well, we need to come up with some other way to measure success. And, and that's how we got to where we're at today, where we get to determine, the FBI gets to determine what is success. The question that really needs to be asked, which never gets asked in Washington because they never do away with anything, they just add on to something that's not working already. Right. Um, the only way to fix this this mechanism for determining what success is is 
get rid of the intelligence cadre and you won't have to worry about what determines success. And you can go back to actually making cases, locking up people and, oh, staying within the confines of the uh, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. 100%. Give me two seconds. I think I'm going to pause this because we, we it looks like you stroked out over there and I'm going to try to uh, reset the video. So give me one second here. Instead of, tr- you know, instead of trying to fix something that is irreparably broken, which is the whole uh, mechanism for defining success, um, you know, it, it really needs to be backed up and say, you know, was the Patriot Act a good idea? Um, where is the erosion of civil liberties? Has it become too expensive? Um, and if the answers to those questions are no, the Patriot Act's not a good idea, and yes, the erosion of civil liberties has become too expensive, then the, then the next question is, is, well, do we need a domestic intelligence program? If his answer is yes, then where does it belong? You know, because they've already answered that question once, and I think that the, the last 20 years will show that it hasn't worked out well in terms of a civil liberties standpoint. Right. Um, so do we want to create an MI5, or do we want to just accept the fact that, that um, freedom and, and, and representative democracy is kind of messy from time to time, and that national security is protection of the Constitution and the continuity of the United States, and not, no American shall die. I think that's, um, the, that's the really, but, but yeah, the, that's exit. That's it. But the American people have been sold a whole bill of goods. Right. You know, of, of absolute 100% safety. And we saw that in clear evidence with the COVID lockdowns. Yes. Oh, whatever it takes to defend my neighbor. It's like, no, um, no, I want to go to church. Or no, I want to see my grandparents at the, at the old folks' home. That's right. Um, so we've been so completely neutered, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, we're no longer the home of the free. Um, we want safety and security above any for everything else. The majority of the people of the country, not everyone. There's some people that are going to chaff at that statement, and and good on them for, for not finding it comfortable. That they should, should yeah, them. that should be offensive. That should be offensive to yes. people that uh, that know what freedom is, knows that it's like you said, messy and or dangerous. Um, you accept a certain amount of risk. Like it's really fun riding a motorcycle, right? I mean, I, I like riding a motorcycle. Uh, I don't do it when I have kids right now, and when I have kids that are a little bit bigger and. It wouldn't be such a burden. I'm going to probably go back and have another motorcycle. But when I didn't have kids, I rode a motorcycle and there's a decent possibility you get really hurt. I got friends who have been hurt. I got, I mean, anybody who knows anybody that knows motorcycles, that's a thing, but you make that choice. You know, you, you do your own risk analysis as, as you stated, there is a certain amount of risk that this country either has to absorb because we're going to be free, or we're going to just say, we don't want freedom. It's too much for us. Uh, give me, you know, give me a pillowed room and let me stay inside and maybe just pay me to to watch Netflix, which is kind of, like you said, that's how we ended up in those lockdowns. Yeah, I think a, large, a significant percentage of the population are there. Yes, um, I know. I, that's the other thing, too, because we, we got to see exactly who they were. We get to see who was down with that and who wasn't. Yeah. You know, so again, you know, uh, calling balls and strikes, you know, we'll call the FBI out when they deserve to be called out. Um, and, you know, we'll give them an accolade when they deserve it. But like I said earlier, the FBI just snapped to attention, saluted smartly and said, yes, sir, that's what we'll do. Um, and unfortunately, they got overzealous in, in some cases. And so that makes the FBI really a, a symptom and not really the cause of the problem, which is kind Absolutely. of an interesting look. That's, I mean, I think it's a nuanced look that I haven't necessarily had yet. Yeah, no, I mean, 
you know, like your friend said at the at, at, at the bureau in Boston, you know, you know, maybe a straight shooter, maybe he probably didn't use the term, but sometimes a hard ass, but you know, like Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, I may be hard, but I'm fair. Um, you know, it, it's just I, I think the FBI is is you know, more symptomatic of of a larger problem that was created with the, with the Patriot Act. I like that you say that it's because uh, my, my perspective has always been, let's look back at why the FBI was created. Does that problem exist? And is it worth an eleven point three billion dollar budget to solve? And you're looking at it even more more recently and diagnosing that the the issue is not the original FBI issue. It's it's this this new problem that they've welded on to the FBI's mission set. Uh, when I first got to counterintelligence, tell me how this analogy sounds to you, but I told people that the FBI in the current iteration with Intel and uh, and law enforcement operations, it's like a hammer that somebody welded a screwdriver on the head of. And so what you've got is a, a, a very unwieldy hammer that you can't get close to certain things. We lost your video, by the way. And you've got no, a, it's coming I had back. to take a drink. No problem. Uh, so you've got this unwieldy hammer that doesn't get close enough to floorboards and you can't really, you know, hammer certain things in and it's awkwardly weighted, but you've also got this really uncomfortably heavy screwdriver that doesn't do a real great job of doing that. Cause it's a pain in the ass to turn it and the handle's not right. And, and that seems like the, the two of these missions, they don't coexist well. And if they do, uh, it's really dangerous when they do, uh, sort of get along because it that looks like sort of tyranny. Um, right. you, how do you feel about that sort of, uh, analogy? No, it's it's spot on. And um, look, when there's an accident that happens in the military, there's uh, an investigating officer that's appointed, and they go through every step, you know, leading up to and then during the accident, right? And and get to how did this happen? Mm-hmm. The investigating officer is not out but not looking to assign blame. And that can be done at a later date. Or we can do it while we are investigating why we're in this position why we're, that we're in today and charge people who have violated people's constitutional rights and who have broken federal law. That doesn't mean that, that people like, you know, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page and Kevin Kleinschmidt and James Comey and James Clapper and all the other you know, deep state uh, operatives out there shouldn't be looking at, you know, possible criminal charges. But the main focus should be on, you know, how did this happen and what can we do to correct it? It doesn't mean we have to ignore any kind of legal things that pop up. Right. uh, That's a separate question, basically. Yeah. Totally separate question. So, all right. So uh, let's let's just dig it on that one. One, can it be saved? If so, what's the route that you see uh, that being? And I, I like the idea that you're coming from an Intel perspective because um, I think it's different than some of the guys that I deal with, which are a lot of retired agents. I don't think we need a domestic Intel program. I don't. Okay. Um, I, I've seen enough um, between my time at, at the national security level um, and at the, you know, uh, Uh, the Boston field office Mm -hmm. that I don't see enough out there that would indicate that we need this robust domestic intelligence capability because the cost to civil liberties is too high. So the, the, the detriment outweighs the cost. I think that's a, yeah, that's a good calculation too, though. And, and so specifically what are these, you know, that cost, as you see it, that's going to be, um, you know, can you be 
concrete about what you think. Sure, sure. Without getting into specific specific cases, right? Um, I've seen cases, multiple cases, where um, people are, are in jail for you know aspiring to commit terrorist acts that never would have gotten there were it not for some enterprising undercover uh, uh, UC uh, or even an agent buying things and helping them along the way. It's, um, yep, 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 yep. Uh, so I used to say know, this, tell me how you feel this one. I would tell people that even though a lot of the, the counterterrorism cases are not legally entrapment, they're the moral equivalent thereof. And so there's a legal yep. definition and there's a moral definition. Do, do you agree with that? Yep. Absolutely. We would have these discussions. Mm-hmm. You know, we would have it with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Is this a trap? No, no, you're, you're doing this. This is okay. Check. This is okay. Check. So you've got to build a trap that's going to stand up legally, which is right. really, so really between, sad stuff. Between the U.S. Attorney's Office and the field office, we've become experts at avoiding entrapment from a legal perspective. Mm-hmm. But I can assure you that there were many people seated in that room that, you know, squirming around. This just doesn't feel right. You know, but hey, you got to, you got that balanced scorecard, baby. You got to put those stats well, some, up on yes, the board. Or, some, you, know, you already told them what you're going to do. Are going out. That's it. And so the sad thing is, is that I think a lot of people that sign up to be, uh, to work in the jobs that you have and I have, you know, come from a very fundamentally fair aspect of things. They didn't go out there to set people up. That doesn't feel good. Um, and at the same time, they're trying to maintain their paycheck. And so, if you're legally correct, does that make you morally correct? I think some people kind of walk away with a very dirty taste in their mouth from that. Uh, it sounds like you have as well. Um, you know, I did it from the surveillance side of things where you're watching it, you get the case brief and you're like, what the, uh, can you do that? And they go, oh yeah, yeah. And you go like, oh, uh, I don't really feel good about it. Like that feels gross. And that squirm, you know, I used to get that all the time in the briefings where you just kind of go like, I can't believe this is legal. And then once you start looking at it further on, you just go like, well, of course it's legal, but it doesn't make it right. And that's where you get no, the sophisticated piece. Yeah, I'm not going to get into, you know, dissecting, you know, each individual in, in the Michigan uh, uh, Governor Whitmer case. But some of those people were basically functioning illiterates. Yes, correct. You know, and I know that the FBI is not in the social services business, but some of those people, the time, money and effort probably could have been spent in other areas uh, as opposed to just locking them up in the federal prison system. A hundred percent. I mean, and, and, and I'm not one of those, oh, we need to defund the police. We no. Need to people out of the prison. I'm just saying that, you know, there's just the, the way that we're doing, the way the FBI and DOJ are doing it now, um, it's too easy. It's, it really is too easy to put somebody away. Well, yeah, Trevor Aronson uh, I mean, did like a whole thing about this regarding jihad stuff. And I saw one down in Tampa, which I've, I've spoken about, at least on this podcast. And I, I think I've done it publicly. But it's like, when you brief me that the guy is probably psychotic... And then you go do something and then the judge later tells you that he's psychotic because they did a psych exam. It's like, yeah, I knew that right away. The guy was having psychotic breaks. So is that a real jihadi or should you just bake rack the guy, put him away so that he can not hurt himself or others? Because that's kind of, you know, do we owe a duty to like the public um, for the right thing to do versus our metrics? And I think we chase metrics more often than not because, man, it's really easy to put away like, you know, poor, broke, crazy people. Uh, and, oh, and, yeah. and who's, and they don't have any defense. Like, what are they going to do? You can't stand up. You cannot stand up against the department of justice. If, if, if the, and, and this is not bragging, if the DOJ and the FBI want you, you're going to get got, there's just no two ways about it. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. I mean, it's true. And we've seen it, unfortunately. Um, 
like you say, you don't have to get into the specifics of it to just know that there's innumerable stories. The Intercept does a good job publishing some of them. Um, and then people's just own experience. Julie Kelly has, has documented the Whitmer thing pretty well, but uh, it's troubling. Uh, so you, your, your impression is, is one, we don't need a domestic intel mission. And so, so how would you see this? If you, you know, they give you king for the day, you get to go up or king for two weeks or however long it takes to get governments to move things. Um, what's your solution look like in, in real time? Like who's in charge of what and where do these, just, <coughs> where do these responsibilities so, go? So <sighs> Patriot Act advise a 702 that's that's step one they need to go period okay. we got to go back to 702 later too so let's do that yeah. but yeah once keep going. you once you do that you really have cut the legs out from a domestic intelligence program mm -hmm. so you, you've basically dug up the root for the vine okay um then the domestic intelligence program needs to go it needs to go into the history books what do you do with the people that are working that what, what's your thoughts like where do they go well, let me quote Joe Biden uh, or President Obama. They can learn code. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So this it's, no, just, it's I, not even it's not even needed anywhere else. Too, we're going to have to some poor sop digging coal in West Virginia. Why not have the same attitude for you know some Ivy League educated uh, blue hair with a degree in international studies? Go learn. Go learn a tangible skill. In other well, words, we've moved on as a country from the skill set that you had. So either go, you know, retool, re-equip. And that's what you're telling. And I, I don't think you're wrong per se. I'm just interested. Yeah. Um, me and I have empathy, sympathy, none. Um, I think it's the other way around. Empathy oh, means okay. you feel as they do. Um, you, you can feel for them, but you don't feel the way they do. No. Yeah. And so I, I, I tend to I, I tend to be in that same kind of camp, by the way. Um, so that's so, interesting. Okay. So they're gone. like the next steps go. Mm -hmm. Nobody talks about it. In 2011, there was a week-long series of articles, and of all places, the Washington Post, done by Dana Priest, and I can't remember who it was co-authored with, where they went through every element within the intelligence community and basically used Venn diagrams and looked at overlap. There's there a lot. is such a massive overlap in federal law enforcement and in the intelligence community. Mm -hmm. This is where General Flynn got into trouble with, with, with the Obama administration when he dared question whether or not the FBI should have a counterintelligence mission and that should actually fall under DOD. Um, so, you know, the, these, are, these, aren't any, these aren't fiefdoms. These are kingdoms. Mm -hmm. These are, you know, when the, the Republicans are talking about a 21st century, a 2023 version of the church committee. And I apologize. My English literature is not what it should be. Obviously, my vocabulary is not what it should be. I already missed, missed already on uh, empathy and sympathy. But I think what Shakespeare said, if you're going to kill the king, make sure you kill the king. If they're going to go after this new committee, after the intelligence community, they better make sure they get out of every bit of cancer that's out there because I can tell you right now it's going to come back and it'll come back stronger more vicious than ever I think you're very right about that yeah I think the old the line is something to the effect of if you take a shot at the king you better not miss um but I, and I'm probably also misquoting that but I think you're exactly right like there is a, a a danger and I and I'm I'm hopeful that people are brave um 
hey, take the shot. You just don't miss. Just do it. Do the right thing because this is your shot at it. And you've got a lot of groundswell. And I hope that we're adding to that. Um, I want to give some ammunition. And you brought up 702. So I'm going to walk through that door. I could not see a way that 702 FISA coverage could be used the way that it was written. I don't understand how it can lawfully be used by the FBI under any circumstances, certainly not as a criminal investigator. Maybe you, it sounds like you kind of uh, are concerned about it. I wonder if they're the same concerns. Well, I mean, we would use it, you know, and and get unmaskings um, through a lawful process uh, to do that uh, when USPERS were picked up on on, uh, 702. Um, But Samantha Powers didn't need it. No, and so when you Susan saw need it. yeah, when you saw seven hundred two stuff, what were you, how are you seeing it? Were you seeing it right in DWS? Were you seeing it in the database the way that I was reading it, or were you reading it in a different way? Would it come um, through? Uh, we would actually get emails directly from from NSA saying, "Hey, we, we have an USPR here. Here's the here's the serial number of the report. We'd look at it at the, at the high side and on the TS side, um, and then make a determination of whether or not we want to go in and ask for an unmasking." And so you, it would not be a, a, an USPR that you would be able to see their information right there, or you would no, see it? No, 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 so, we had to ask. Okay, so I I used to review, as an 1811, raw raw FISA on a regular basis. It would come in right. straight to my to my uh, red side terminal, so this is secret. And that's and, fine, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I would get emails, and the way that I saw it is, is that if my job is to find people that are violating national security protocols, if they are, you know, doing counterproliferation, if they are engaging in trading, uh, you know, defense information and so on, um, because my, you know, so people understand. Okay, so 702 is a collection protocol. It is uh, authorized under the FISA that allows us to get uh, non-USPERS that are not in the United States and collect on platforms that are outside the U.S. So that's going to be email addresses that are held by foreign entities. Right. These are going to be... Um, uh, these are going to be either co-opted or intelligence officers from other countries that are threat countries. And we are gathering information from them directly as we can. Anytime it touches American wire, anytime it touches American transmissions. And so in my case, mostly it was emails coming through American facilities because it's the easiest way to right. use them. Yep. And so I collect a lot of that. And, and when I'm using them, um, you know, I'm a criminal investigator. I'm looking for crimes. That's what I'm doing. Even though they told me I was just looking for information. I wasn't. I was trying to find crimes because that's what I was interested in. And I found it the, the equivalent of giving the TSA a metal detector. Tell them their job is to look for weapons and not let any get on a plane. But uh, you can put three people through the metal detector, but you can't use the metal detector to identify weapons. Because there is a statutory requirement that we do not target American citizens through the 702 process, which is known as reverse targeting. That means I'm looking right. at I'm looking at uh, George, but I'm really looking for when he contacts Kyle or Kyle contacts him. And I don't know any other way to use it. I don't see like as a criminal investigator, like what the hell else do I care? Like, I don't really care if you're talking to people or if you're getting, you know, you're going on a cruise ship. Like, it's interesting to know about your life. It's interesting to know that you just re- renewed your driver's license, I guess. Right. But really, I want to know, like, who are you talking to that's at the War College? Who are you talking to that's in a command structure at CENTCOM? Like, those are the things that I want to see. And if those are out there, I'm not allowed to use those. But, like, that's the only purpose I could see. Right. Yeah? It's, it's, there's no other purpose than, uh, for the other than the potential for abuse. Okay. So that's all I could see. And when I talked to, like, a number of CI investigators, they all kind of told me, like, yeah, like we're not allowed to do that. But, like, how else are you going to use it? Like, what else is it for? Right. It's to be abused. Yeah. Which is, which is legally used. 
Um, and then, and of course, they've gone through and they've documented that there were something like 3.4 million searches of American names through these databases by the FBI without getting a special warrant to go do so, because nobody even knows that that's a process. Like as an agent, I didn't know that was a process. So, and then what do we do? Do we go ask for forgiveness later? No, we just ignore it. We just go, who's going to investigate us? OIG, that's okay. DOJ is not going to prosecute us. So you talk about the kingdoms and the danger of it. Uh, you know, what else, what else are they going to do? Like they can't, they can't enforce change unless there's a statutory requirement to start pulling funding and access. And like you say, yeah. take that shot and, and, and cut the root. Yeah. So, so you had the same impression. I think that's interesting too. Cause I always was like, man, maybe it's just me. Maybe I just don't understand how to use this tool. No, no. But, um, the, you know, the, 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 the appointees in the Obama administration understood how to use it. Correct. Yeah, and, and I mean, you, know. you, you, you can flesh that out for people because not everybody is, I mean, not everybody follows the news. I think a lot of people are waking up to that there is news yeah, out there I, to follow. I don't remember the exact number, how many people that Susan Rice and, and Samantha Power, UN ambassador, um, but Susan Rice was the one who went on five Sunday morning talk shows claiming that the Benghazi attack was uh, in response to a, an offensive video. Very offensive. Uh, and she is a national security advisor for the current administration today, mm-hmm. and uh, a national security, not the national security advisor. Right. And um, and then Samantha Powers, who was a UN ambassador, and the hundreds of people they they were getting unmasked. Right. You know, and then once you unmask those, you, you know, like you said, you can start reverse targeting them. Um, you know, uh, we know that 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 uh, headquarters, FBI headquarters, lied to the FISA court. Um, you know, you go up on FISA on people and start two hopping them like they did with um, Carter Page and President Trump. That's how they managed to collect on President Trump. Right. Uh, you know, that's how the FBI knew that that Hunter Biden's laptop was going to be released by The New York Times because they were listening to Rudy Giuliani. I mean, it, it's just it, it just goes on and on and on and on. I mean, right. And, and people need just, to understand, too, that we can justify a case in the national security realm the way that it is currently configured. Um, under what I've been, you know, I always call them contact cases. That's what I was, you know, described. It's you have a contact that is suspicious or is questionable or a problem. And that doesn't mean that you're actually doing anything nefarious. You just have contact with this person and they might be trying to come after you, but we can still open the case for you. I'm trying to talk around it a little bit just so we're not uh, walking over anything that's not allowed. But, you know, the idea that you can open a case on someone because they are potentially the victim of something is really like that's outside the, the ballpark of everybody's understanding of what the FBI does. But if you think about it, it, it goes down to, you know, what we talked about an hour ago. Mm-hmm. No American shall be harmed. Right. Um, when you have a zero tolerance policy um, and you have a, a zealous, um, you know, supercharged, empowered, investigative slash intelligence workforce, they're going to get out after it. Right. Uh, and, I'm not excusing the behavior. Don't don't get me wrong. No, I'm but I, I do think it helps. They, they created this. Yeah, it does. It, I mean, it's it's and it's achievable as zero COVID. Essentially, the only way you get zero COVID is everybody gets locked in their own single little you know box, and then nobody right. breathes the same air. So that's zero COVID, and that's essentially what this that mandate is going to lead to uh, if you keep doing it, which is the perfect form of you know perfect tyranny means everybody's 100 percent under control. Uh, yeah. And it does sound like we, we like that's the way that we're we're walking. If you're going to keep this up, you can't do pre-crime successfully in this country with no. the the civil liberties that we are required to be able to enjoy. Yeah, th- there needs to take place a uh, a re-education, and and people need to understand, you know, that 
line in the in the national anthem, you know, in the home of the brave, mm-hmm. um, you know, willing to to accept some risk, you know. I mean, look, there's no entrepreneur out there that was not unwilling to accept risk. Risk, um, you know. There's no successful operator or infantry leader, or fighter pilot, or even a tanker pilot that wasn't willing to accept some degree of risk. People have to learn to start embracing risk, not only in terms of achieving success, but quite frankly, there's a little bit of excitement to it. You know, when, when I go, you know, snowshoeing in the White Mountains of New Hampshire and it's minus 40 degree wind chill, um, there's a good chance I'm not going to come back, but it's exciting. I'm going to make sure I pack the right gear. I make sure everybody knows where I'm going. You know, I, I right. go with the right people. Right. Um, Mitigate you know, as necessary, but, but you know, still but assume zero, risk. Zero risk is not a fun life. You, no. I, I know I'm talking to the choir here, but there are people who want that, and I, I, I genuinely feel badly for them. I really do. Do you see them in your classes out of curiosity? Is that people that are no. coming? Not at all? No, not, not in my class, no, no. They know um, better. No, not necessarily. I mean, um, I, I, no, I, I haven't. I haven't run into any in ten years of teaching graduate school. School, I haven't run into any risk adverse uh, students. Well, that's that's um, encouraging, women, especially in grad school. Willing, yeah, men and women willing to hang their you know what's out there and, and take a shot. I like it. Um, are you hopeful or optimistic that we can make this change? What what's your like honest real world assessment? I heard Seb Gorka last night say a five percent chance that we improve things. <laughs> Where are you at? Uh, I I. My assessment is with with a medium degree of confidence that it's going to boomerang back at us and it's going to hurt us really bad. I mm-hmm. think I think they're going to take a shot at the king. I think they're going to miss and mm-hmm. the king is going to come back with a vengeance. All you have to do is listen to the FBI themselves. The Washington field office has got over 900 cases right now associated with nine uh, January 6th right. and they expect 900 more. Does that sound like uh, an organization that that is capable of introspection and self-examination and saying, hey, I think maybe this is not the way we want to go. Um, so no, absolutely, positively not. I, 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 I only, I'll go beyond Seb Gork and say who I've met, um, who's a, he was uh, our expert uh, witness for the marathon bombing. Sure. Um, I would go as far as to say that this undertaking, even though it has to be engaged in, is going to be highly dangerous. Um, I, I've, I read, um, was it Cash Patel who wrote the book, him, or him and Devin Nunes on their work? Yeah. The, okay, the, so, the threat, the so, plot against the, the king or plot yeah, against the president. So, rather. So I, read, I read that. I watched the series. Um, we need a thousand of him. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's just that bad. I really do. I think every lymph node of the body, everyone is infected with cancer. I really do. Um, and, um, you know, I've got grandchildren, um, and I love this country. I, and, and I don't say it as hyperbole, um, was willing to lay my life down on, you know, for this country on multiple occasions, um, without a second thought. Um, I do think that it is a gift to the world from God and we've been abusing it and, um, we've got to fight like hell lawfully through the investigative process, through the democratic process to try to get back to a constitutional republic. But they've been working at this for over a hundred years. I forget who said it, 
um, your, I think it was um, Steve Bannon, you're not going to change the country in one election. No. Um, you know, and, you know, just like, you know, some of the major cases that we've had that I've been exposed to, um, you're going to have to eat the elephant, which is one bite at a time. Mm -hmm. And it tastes like crap. Um, but if you want it, you're going to have to start eating. Yeah, there's no other way around it. Um, people who are looking for that concrete concrete first step that, that uh, you know, what can I do? Because I get that a lot of my DMs. I'm sure you get things like that. Or you've got people in your students, your classes that are asking this. What are your, if you had two or three things, it's like, this is the concrete action you got to take, whether it's mindset or attitude or whatever else. It's just what is your advice when people are asking <clears throat> that question? So let me start with the easy answer first because um, I'm doing it. I teach school mm -hmm. and I've taught in a New England college, small New England college for over 10 years and have not gotten in any trouble at all. And I think it's pretty clear, uh, you know, where I shoot from. Um, and I haven't gotten in trouble because when I teach like, you know, detainee handling or terrorism operations, I teach by the rule of law, whether it's the Geneva Conventions, laws of land warfare, U.S. federal code, um, our partnerships within the Five Eyes community. I teach things that I can submit into evidence that this is this is the basis for what we do. Um, so back to Joe Friday, just stick with the facts. You can evangelize people if you speak with passion, but speak facts. Um, you know, so when people say, well, I don't think that, you know, uh, you know, that the detainees in Gitmo, you know, should be treated like that. And it's like, well, according to the laws of land warfare, they're unlegal, they're unlawful combatants. Um, do you know what you can do to an unlawful combatant legally through international treaty of which we're a signature? Um, you know, and, and talk about those things as opposed to an engaging in an emotional argument uh, about someone's feelings. And yeah. I do say that to my class, your feelings are no more valid than mine and mine are no more valid than yours. So if you can, engage people on, on the facts of the matter. Um, and some people just can't get past that. They're just, they're not, just not going to. Yeah, some people but, shut down. Right, you know, but you know, maybe I've touched the lives of, over the last 10 years of, of 150 students. Um, and you know, hopefully, you know, over the next 10 years, they'll touch the lives of, of 300 students mm -hmm. um, with that same sort of mindset. You know, so kind of like eating the elephant, you know, take a small bite, start small, teach a class, um, become a scoutmaster, just just something where you can be a good role model um, and, you know, explain the story of this country. I grew up outside of Philadelphia. I act I'm not old enough. So no jokes. But, you know, I've camped at Valley Forge, you know, I've, I've in February, um, you know, you know, been to Brandywine, been to Washington's Crossing been to Independence Hall, um, was there for the anniversary of the, 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 the creation of the Constitution, 200th anniversary, um, immerse yourselves in our, our nation's history. It's, it's dirty, yes, um, but each year, you know, we get better. Um, so, so do those little things, you know, whether it's teach a class or getting involved in your community, um, and you'll probably die and not see the results of your effort, but know that you, you, you did make an effort and you tried and, and hopefully you've influenced people to go out and, and, and emulate your behavior yep. and, and they influence people who in turn influence more. I, um, I think depending on your state where you live, I think it's a wasted phone call to call your, your representative. Um, 
my representative is Catherine Clark. Um, I just as soon talk to a dog on the street. Um, they know I'm talking to them, but they have no idea what I'm talking about. That's fair. Yep. Um, so, so some people are not going to be able to make that, but they can call other representatives they know that are sympathetic, I suppose, and kind of right. voice it just, yeah, as long as you're being honest about where you're calling but, from. But just like I told people that work for me, you know, like, okay, fine. You want to come in to me and complain about a problem, but, you know, you're a GS-13 or GS-14, you need to have one or two solutions. Yes. Well, you know, I, so, I, I always believe that. If you don't come in with two solutions, what are you doing? Because i got to give you two options and then maybe my recommendation, and then and that's the supervisor's gig. Um, right. So if you're going to call an elected representative, say, you know, I, I disagree with this bill, you know, maybe perhaps we should be looking at whatever. Yep. Maybe something they but, – but do it in a respectful manner. Um, you may not respect the individual, but respect the office, respect the people that they represent. That is something that uh, we've kind of lost in this country in a lot of ways. And maybe the elective representatives have been part of that. They've been part and parcel of who, who they're putting into the offices. But that doesn't, I agree with you that if you right, want to go their, their bad behavior does not give me license to behave badly. Correct. 100%. All right. Well, how can people, um, if they want to connect with you, if they want to follow what you got to say, uh, obviously they can take your classes. But uh, for those that are located across the country, um, you know, your your handles and things like that, What what, what what's good? Well, tw- Twitter's, you know, it's all politics primarily for me and there's some sarcasm uh in there as well every now and then sure um i don't i I don't know what my handle is on instagram but it's all strictly outdoor stuff hiking backpacking snowmobiling atv um just stupid stuff that a man my age should not be doing so be it uh but your twitter handle is going to be senior spelled out chief yep yep and then there's three letters on the end of it was it e exw E uh, Expeditionary Warfare, yeah. Okay. Um, and and nobody I'm... remembers the number two guy. I was the, the second reservist uh, to get their Expeditionary Warfare pin. Another gentleman, a real hard charger by the name of Lou Barani. Uh, he was the first reservist to get his uh, warfare pin. Um, but um, but I had a, a very rewarding career, and I'm, I'm proud of that designation. Fair uh, enough. Just as much as I, you know, and I'm proud of my time in the Marine Corps as well. No, 100%, which I love that you got it sitting behind you. So, again, so if people want to follow you on Twitter, they want to engage with you there in that space, it's going to be at Senior Chief, C-H-I-E-F, and then, like, Expeditionary Warfare Group, which is going to be e- or Just E-X-W, yep. Oh, E-X-W. Yep. So there you go, folks. Um, and uh, and I'm following you, so they can find you uh, through mine. Over if they're, they're yeah. yeah, they can go look that up. If you type in Senior Chief, he pops right up. And uh, I really appreciate your time. One, I appreciate appreciate your candor. I appreciate you calling balls and strikes. I think I try to do the same thing. So I think that's why you and I had kind of a good uh, initial uh, read on each other. And um, keep doing what you're doing out there. And if there's anything we can do, I'll have you back on. We'll talk about it again. If something wild happens when they take the shot, we'll see if it goes the way that uh, that you expect. I have I have equal concerns. But uh, George, thanks so much for putting your time in today and and sitting there. I'm glad your voice held out too. Yeah, I'm surprised. I got gotten better over the last week. So that's very good Thank stuff. You. All right, folks. Um, this has been the Kyle Serafin Show. Thanks so much for joining us. If you like what you're hearing, please share it with your friends. If you want to give us a five star review, Phil will read the next one when he makes it on. By the way, he texted me about a few minutes into this and told me that uh, he just now picked up his phone. So he missed all two hours. He'll have to look at and watch the video. But uh, two hours long. Thanks for sticking with us, folks. Um, Like, share, subscribe to the Kyle Serafin Show, and we will catch you next Monday with another long-form interview like this. Um, Hang in there. It's going to get interesting this year. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.